You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Morning, Pinky. Breakfast as usual. And get me a cosmopolitan, a glamour, a new woman, complete woman, working woman, and modern wrestler. You got it. Frankie Stone's got it all. A fulfilling job. Myrold's group is still waiting on the promo copy. Geraldi likes the slogan, but he wants to delete the word small. He thinks it's a turnoff. An understanding mother. You could have married the most eligible bachelor in all of Miami if you played your cards right. A good friend. Frankie, I always thought Steve was about the best you were going to do. She had only one problem. Finding the right guy. Miss Stone, the Ulysses Android is an amazing piece of equipment. I'm not used to promoting hardware, Doctor. I promote people. But she was about to take a step in the right direction. My God, he looks like you. What did you think he'd look like? An erector set? Making Mr. Right. He was designed for space. Guess that means you don't cook. But his heart was set on Earth. I think you're the most attractive woman I know. I'm the only woman you know. What was that? I love you, Jeff. What is that woman teaching you? <laughs> we were making love and it was the most beautiful thing I've ever felt in my entire life. Some minor activity occurs in the medulla and, and wham, they think they're in love. You just made it with my android. Ew! <laughs> Ulysses, you have a great future in space. You'll go down in the history books. You're to be envied. I don't want to be envied. I want to be loved. From the director of Desperately Seeking Susan, Making Mr. Right. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Back with me once again is Mr. Miguel Rodriguez. Hi, Mike White. I think I love you. Also back with us this week is Ms. Beth Accomando. Thank you for having me back. This week we are discussing the 1987 film from director Susan Seidelman, Making Mr. Right. The film stars Anne Magnuson as Frankie Stone, an advertising executive who's out to make the company Chemtech and its Ulysses Android program known in hopes of getting congressional funding. The Ulysses robot and its creator are both played by John Malkovich. The irony, of course, is that the robotic Ulysses seems more human than his human counterpoint, Dr. Jeff Peters. Of course, we're going to be getting to spoil Spoilers on this now 30-year-old film, so if you haven't seen the film, please turn off the podcast, go watch it, and come on back. We will still be here. Now, Miguel, when was the first time you saw Making Mr. Right, and what did you think? You know, in preparation for recording this episode, I was trying to remember what the answer to that question is, and I'm not positive, but I do think uh, it was a video store rental around the time. What was the film that John Malkovich was in with Clint Eastwood, In the Line of Fire? I think it was around then because, um, you know, that came out when I was still a pretty young teenager. And I was like, wow, John Malkovich is just so intense in this. And then I saw video stories like, oh, he plays an android in a romantic comedy. This I have to see. And uh, I think I saw it around then. And uh, I have to admit, I don't remember much of the experience. So watching it again for this podcast, uh, it was pretty much like coming to it with fresh eyes. 
How about you, Beth? This makes me have to reveal how much older I am than everybody. <laughs> um, but I was actually writing film reviews at the time, and so I had seen it at a press screening. I believe it was at Landmark Theaters. So I had actually reviewed her film Smithereens before this, and so I saw this as a film critic, and I remember enjoying it. I also rented this one. I remember the box at the Blockbuster that I worked at when I was in uh, college. And something about it, I don't know if it was Anne Magnuson or what it was that attracted me to renting this film. Or it could have been Blonde Malkovich, uh, which you don't get to see very often. <laughs> so Not just blonde, but he's got, as Ulysses, he's got that, like... Totally innocent face (laughs) with like just like a deer in the headlights kind of that it's quite attractive. Yes. Wide eyed wonder. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember enjoying this movie. And then um, a few, uh, I guess it was probably about a year ago, was uh, starting to look into doing an episode about Celine and Julie go boating. And I was thinking, oh, well, I should talk to uh, Susan Seidelman because I know that Desperately Seeking Susan was uh, kind of influenced by Celine and Julie and ended up reaching out to her. And it just kind of kicked off this whole snowball of a Making Mr. Right episode. I never thought I would be doing an episode on Making Mr. Right, but here it is, folks. So I hope that you enjoy it. It's not necessarily a movie that everybody in the world remembers, but I find that it has a whole lot of stuff to offer, and it's a fun film. A lot of fun. It's a lot of it's a lot of fun, and I, I <laughs> you you had trouble finding co-hosts to join you on this particular episode, didn't you? Yeah, nobody really either <laughs> watched this movie or enjoyed it enough to come on. So you guys kind of volunteered last time you were on. So I really appreciate that. <laughs> well, you know, I was hoping I could find my old film review, but that was like pre-internet days and like two or three computer formats ago. And it's on a floppy disk, which wasn't floppy and wasn't a disk. It was square. <laughs> so I was going like, well, can't get into that folder anymore. <laughs> I was uh, at San Diego Comic Fest today and I ran into a fellow Jason Lethert. And I was like, oh, yeah, I have to uh, get to KPBS tonight because we're on Projection Booth Podcast. He's like, oh, really? What are you talking about? Making Mr. Right? Making Mr. Right? Why? (laughs) 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 Which makes it just so much better, doesn't it? Yeah. It makes me so much more excited to be doing this. Like I said, it's it's not a movie that too many people talk about anymore. I think that people still talk about Smithereens. People definitely talk about Desperately Seeking Susan. Maybe people even still talk about She-Devil. I don't know. But um, this one just seemed to fly under the radar. And to me, it's got a lot of nice stuff to say. I mean, it's it's got a terrific cast to it. And it's got really strong female leads. And so much of this movie moves along because of the women that are in the cast. And that's one of the things that I like it is it's kind of a feminist statement, but at the same time, it's not kind of beating you over the head with the fact that it is a feminist statement. I mean, you still have uh, our 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 protagonist almost crashing her car at the beginning because she's putting on her lipstick. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You can't take that away. I do like seeing Anne Magnuson with that electric razor kind of going at her legs in the car. I don't know. <laughs> it's hysterical. <laughs> well, I think there's a cosmic injustice to this because Beth and I were talking about this a little bit earlier. And this was in 1987, right? And this is 
this period in time where you can have a romantic comedy that is so insane and off the wall. And I feel like you can't do that anymore where you had movies like Weird Science and you had movies like um, Mannequin. You know, this kind of reminds me of Mannequin. But this one, in my opinion, is superior to both of those. Yes, I think so. Well, and the the thing with both of those is it's all male fantasies. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think this is kind of also that period of time when Hollywood wasn't quite sure how to deal with, like, new female roles and, and kind of the rising feminism. And they were caught in this weird they – were, they were past the 60s of kind of like the Doris Day stereotypes of trying to – be like the new woman, the new modern woman, where it was very like self-consciously aware of what it was doing. And then it kind of like hit the 70s and we had like some gritty stuff and some, you know, realistic feeling roles. And then the 80s and it's kind of like they're like, we still want to have kind of a fantasy, but we also want to recognize that you're this new kind of woman. <laughs> and and they, were, they were caught in this like weird little space, I think. Was that, casual sex around this time? You remember that film, Casual Sex? Yes, that was the one with remember. Victoria that, Jackson. That sounds like 80s. Yeah, I think I... that was around 88, 89, too. Where you have the same kind of, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting her name. I'm just going to call her Tess Trueheart from Dick Tracy. Oh, Glenn Headley. Yeah, Glenn. So, and I know you have an interview with her, so sorry, Miss Headley, but uh, she'll always be Tess Trueheart to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, she has, a, you know, the 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 whole dialogue in this film about I'm single now and I just want I've never had a menage a trois. Let's go crazy. I want to have all the sex. You know, it it feels like that kind of the moments like that are played for laughs, but a little more clever, a little more fun, a little less stupid, I guess. Uh, well, and she also Susan Seidelman talks about how Billy Wilder's an influence on mm. her. So I think this sense of um, not quite screwball comedy, but th- these kind of kind of smart comedies with well-defined characters and some clever dialogue, and you can see a little bit of that influence. I was reminded a little bit of uh, Earth Girls Are Easy while I was watching this. Yeah, again. that's a that's an apt description, particularly with uh, the art design. I mean, yeah. I, I know we're going to get into details on this, but. There are these little touches that I loved, like the uh, the hand scanner is gigantic. <laughs> like you fit the tiny little hand into this huge handprint. It's like, why did they make it like that? It, it's almost like a mix between Earth Girls Are Easy and maybe something you'd see on Buckaroo Bonsai or something. Yeah, I'm wondering who is the guy whose hand that fits, please? <laughs> Does he work there? Lurch was there on yeah. the set. Well, I like that we start off with uh, her, uh, Frankie Stone. Uh, played by Ann Magnuson, asleep in the film and uh, kind of being woken up by this news clip of her, well, we don't know at the time, but of Steve Marcus, the uh, political candidate. And uh, he's there kind of uh, in, you know, talking about Miss Havana, the Miss Havana contest and really uh, being overly affectionate. I, I can never imagine a guy who's being overly affectionate with uh, beauty contest winners. That would be kind of weird. Well, here's an interesting question that I had is we learn more about him later, but at that moment, do you think he committed a sin worthy of her rage that she displays throughout the rest of the film? Well, I would say that she probably had her doubts beforehand (laughs) because once we meet him, we know he's no catch. He is definitely not 
Mr. Right, and there's probably no way to make him into Mr. Right. So whether or not that was, I think it was more a sense of like the straw that broke the camel's mm-hmm. back. And, and I think it kind of made her realize, yeah, maybe not. And and also because she's handling his campaign as well as having a relationship with him. I think part of her brain was saying, he's going to be harder to sell as that sensitive guy. Because what, what's the tagline they have for him? It's like a, a man this sensitive. Yeah. Uh, works for you or works something. For, like yeah, so they they play up his, his how sensitive a guy he is with that new mustache. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I I don't think that one act in itself would be enough to end a relationship. But if you're in a relationship where you're already questioning, should you be in that relationship? And then as his like advertising person looking at that and going, hmm, maybe not. (laughs) I can see. And this leads to one of my favorite shots in the movie, which is (laughs) to kind of put a a real cap to the end of their relationship. (laughs) She throws out the standee (laughs) of him from her window, and you see it like wafing on the wind as it (laughs) crashes down in front of his car. And, And the shot is great because when you first see it, you're not quite sure what it is. But you just see him, like, coming out of the window. <laughs> and I love that shot. That was just brilliant. And the fact that he runs it over. He runs it over, too. <laughs> yeah, and it's a nice shot, too, of it on the ground with the tire mark across it. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he, he didn't put up too much of a fight, did he? She's no. like, get out, and he's gone. <laughs> he didn't look like he had a whole lot of backbone. No, no, he definitely did not. <laughs> I mean, he's no Don. He's no Donnie. But I think we'll get to Don later. One of my favorite parts of the film, by the way. <laughs> New Jersey. <laughs> it's not a state. It's a state of mind. <laughs> well, the beginning of the film with with Steve Marcus on the television set really kind of sets up so much because there's um, this relationship with the television that we get throughout the rest of the film because for so much of it, you talked about Don, we only see him on TV. I mean, there's a moment where he's allegedly in the apartment building or in her apartment, but we never see him. And it's just kind of interesting that we just see him on TV. Well, does he actually exist Yeah, of yeah. the screen? He's almost like George Glass. <laughs> he, does, he does show up later. But, uh, I mean, you, you just mentioned that scene where supposedly he's with Trish upstairs having their, their little battle. And it's a little bit – I don't even think about that because two of the strongest side characters in the film are Don's agents. <laughs> Those like <laughs> – those Italian guys like making the pastrami sandwiches on the table. Oh, they're they're Italian. I thought for sure they were Jewish. Oh, Jew. Yeah, I think they're Italian Jews from New York, right? Yeah. They're ethnic. They're ethnic. Well, yeah, they're definitely. I mean, he's got the want a pickle. <laughs> I mean, they're hysterical. These side characters are are just outstanding, and the actors too. I mean, yeah. top to bottom, the cast is great. And I think that's the, that's the strength, is yeah. the cast. Yeah, I have to say one of my favorite characters in the whole movie is Dr. Ramdas, who is the uh, <laughs> guy who runs Chemtech. And oh, probably man. one of the best uh, Indian uh, uh, actor roles that I'd seen in a long time. And here it is in 1987. I mean, luckily he's not stereotyped. You know, he's not like praying to Ganesh or some weird stuff like that. He's just like a dude. 
Yeah, he's not. He's not. Uh, what's his from Short Circuit or whatever? Oh God! Yeah, Fisher yeah. Stevens. Yeah. <laughs> um, and another, you know, bringing up that character, uh, you know, he he works uh, with Doctor Jeff Peters, John Malkovich's scientist character, and uh, and there are these moments where you can tell he kind of has the hots for Frankie. <laughs> And it could so easily cross the line to be just icky and creepy, but you know they they rein it in a little bit. His his wanting to come off cooler to her than he is, it, it, it's just subtle enough to be the kind of charming amusement that it's. I think it's meant to be. Yeah, you know, it gets close, but I think in lesser hands, it it would really just ooze. Uh, whereas it doesn't here. You know, I love also that he's kind of balding and he's wearing that golf hat. <laughs> <laughs> and he's got the handkerchief. Yeah, the handkerchief. <laughs> but also, I think it's a film where where Frankie's character kind of puts him in check also. Mm. So he kind of makes advances and she kind of like taps him on the arm and goes, yeah, 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 you know, or, or whatever, and kind of brushes him off, which I think kind of keeps that in check and keeps it from – you know, developing into something that is uncomfortable because he kind of gets the hint, like, okay, I can keep trying, but she's kind of saying no. To your earlier point, we do get the scene of her driving to work and putting on the makeup in the car, which I think by that time was kind of a cliche, or maybe it would be in the future, but I've definitely seen this before. But uh, yeah, seeing Ann Magnuson, uh, you know, getting all dolled up was something special. And seeing her in that outfit, and she wears so many great outfits oh, in this movie. Her clothes are great. And her hair is out. It's so it's so it's '80s, but it's not like you don't. She doesn't look like an idiot. She looks just just cool enough. Um, and also, you know, she's on top of things. She's really smart, but she's also kind of a mess. And you get that all, you know, in the first opening credit sequence with the car and stumbling into work with no shoes on. Oh, and the Rolodex that she keeps on her arm like a bracelet. I mean, people today may not know what a Rolodex is because everybody's got it on their phone. But uh, and she almost every scene where she's walking to her car, she's got that Rolodex hanging off of her arm. There are not one, but two scenes in this film where she's rushing away from the car and almost gets hit by another car. <laughs> and uh, I mean, the um, she rushes into work. She's running late because again, she's presentable and uh, clearly very good at her job and well respected. Mm-hmm. But she's still kind of a mess, so we can we can uh, we can relate to her in that way. But she goes up to the magazine lady and she's asking for Cosmo and and all the ladies' magazines. But correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the last magazine is a wrestling yeah. magazine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a guy she's ordering from, I think. <laughs> yeah, and she gets all of those magazines. It's just amazing for her to list off every single one that is out there. And surprisingly, almost all of them are still out there. Even in this world where <laughs> magazines are an endangered species, that so many of the Cosmo, Vogue, all those things are still around. Yeah, well. Well, Teen Vogue is uh, doing some of the best hard-hitting journalism that yes. we have around right now. That's so. true. <laughs> <laughs> it is taking always on the, amazing on politics yeah well and i think part of what's fun about it is that you get to have this contrast in her personality where her private life seems to be where the mess is and her professional life is where she's got everything kind of mm. you know all her ducks in a line so you know she can walk through that door and suddenly be that totally sophisticated 
on top of everything, professional woman who knows exactly how to handle this particular advertising case that she's walking into, whereas she just broke up with her boyfriend, you know, she doesn't have a date for the wedding, you know, she she can't get out of the house on time, but it's like we get the fact that there is that contrast makes her kind of all that more uh, engaging as a character. And when she walks into that room and there are those stuffy scientists and, you know, tweed jackets and ties sitting there, she there is no absence of of confidence at all. She sits down and she's takes like, control. This is my this is me. And you guys are going to sit down and listen. And then by contrast, we have the commercial that they had prepared. Yeah. <laughs> and it, uh, it's got John Malkovich as Dr. Peters giving. You know, John Malkovich is known as, as as a great actor, and to see a great actor acting like a bad actor is so delicious. I mean, he's just hilarious. Chemtech gives us America's future today, bringing space inside the American home. And now it is developing its most extraordinary creation yet, the Ulysses Android, destined to revolutionize the American way of life. Developed here at Chemtech Laboratory under my direct supervision, Ulysses is the closest thing to man himself. The future applications for such an android are virtually infinite. Handling hazardous chemicals, detecting radiation, disarming explosives, fighting fires, test piloting new aircraft, and, of course, exploring space. The awesome distances Prolonged periods of time and torturous confinement have made deep space exploration problematic for the human pilot. We believe the Ulysses android is the answer. Okay, I think I've seen enough, Bruce. What do you think? Well, it's not going to win any Oscars. Well, you mentioned about how she takes charge of that room, but her line is, she goes something like, I know I'm late, but I'm worth the wait. Mm -hmm. And she just, like, absolutely no hesitation at all. She knows what she's worth. Yeah, she is great. And to see that commercial and see the the raw material that she has to work with, I'm glad that she isn't flustered at all again, because it seems like it could be a pretty big task for her to suddenly take over the advertisement and this is kind of a weird thing she's taking over the advertisement for this chemtech company in order to help them make this robot palatable to the rest of the world and to help them get their congressional funding i guess if people talk about the ulysses program enough that will help push it through congress or something so I'm not sure. sure quite of the logic there, but I think I think part of it was this notion that he wouldn't be as scary as a robot right. cuz people have these fears of robots taking over <laughs> to humanize him. Yes. So let's make Ulysses friendly. I love some of the animations they had in that video like the plane crashing and the android <laughs> sticks his hand out to become the wing of the plane. It's like look at what we can do with a with an android. And the way he kind of flies into the family din- dining scenario. <laughs> 
questioning that is is just funny because it, it's just such an inane concept to begin with. You know, it's not quite as inane as weird science, and it's only barely less crazy than mannequin, <laughs> but. It's still pretty crazy. Well, it puts us on our path. It puts us on the path where she meets Ulysses and finds that he is a dead ringer for uh, uh, Jeff, Dr. Jeff, also played by John Malkovich. Yeah, their first meeting is pretty fantastic. And just to find that he is that wide-eyed child that you were talking about and just how... um, I mean, he's like a puppy. And just to see John Malkovich, like, just playing. Just want to pat him on the head. Yeah, and he plays both roles, obviously, so wonderfully. Just he's such a dick as Dr. Jeff. And then so nice as Ulysses. It's just remarkable to see him. And then to see him play off of himself is terrific as well. (laughs) Oh, and it gets better as the film goes on, that that element. But, I mean, to come back to what you were saying about – her discovering that Ulysses and Dr. Peters are, are basically identical. The film has, has no – it doesn't go to any length to explain why that is. She goes, hey, he looks like you. And he says, well, of course. And then that's it. <laughs> I just think that's so funny. But the thing that's great about his performance is we in the audience never for a second doubt which one is which. Mm. I mean he really conveys – a completely different personality with each character. I mean, he is literally wide-eyed when he is Ulysses, and that's one thing I appreciate appreciate about his performance is just how amazed he looks all the time. <laughs> he he looks like he's staring at the most beautiful thing he's ever seen at, at all times. With with the you know, there's no oh brave new world. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't want to say there's no intelligence on his face because that that's not true, but it's everything is new and fresh and and uh and he looks just delighted by all that's around him and john malkovich it's just his face he's got that kind of smile where his mouth is just kind of hanging agape <laughs> and it's like a kid at christmas walking downstairs and seeing presents under the tree <laughs> and, you know another thing that they have that i just find i die when i see it uh with laughter goes toward the uh, art direction again is for some reason with no explanation whatsoever there's this chair that rises oh. with <laughs> with the levers and and you get to see both Ulysses and Dr. Peters sitting in the chair and the first time that's, you see it it's Dr. That's Peters. supposed to simulate the space travel. Come on. We also have those monkeys in them, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it, there's that and they one. use it for punctuation, too, a couple of times where, you know, like, do you think she has sex appeal? And the chair jumps up and down really fast. And he's like, well, I do. <laughs> oh, my God. So they put it to good use. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's genius. It's one of my favorite parts of that movie. And the first time you see it, Dr. Peters is alone in it. And he's just <laughs> bouncing like mad. It, it's, it's going bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, Ulysses' jumpsuit, by the way. Just <laughs> not only is it a jumpsuit, but just those weird kind of like elbow and knee pad things that he has going on. Well, because you know when you're when you're like a newborn, like he is, you have a tendency to fall and bump into things, and you need to be protected. The physical comedy that Malkovich yeah. brings to it in, in those tapes of Ulysses learning how to walk and yes. pouring water and all these things, I mean, really brings a great physicality to the role. 
And you don't see him do that kind of thing very often. Like, so it makes it all that more exciting to see. This is John Malkovich, you know, basically doing like the uh, the uh, Ministry of Silly Walks kind of stuff. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and when he's in the mall and, and crawling on his hands and knees after a children's toy and writing the little like quarter machines, it, all of it is so fun. It's only been recently where I know that he's done a lot of comedy, you know, like the the role that he does in Red and Red 2. Mm. And then even, I guess you could say uh, Con Air, but it's more like the tough guy quips that he's doing rather than full out comedy. But yeah, he just had a real knack for it in this. And then, you know, they also play it up because when he gets his his like real clothes, for whatever reason, the guy dressing him gives him pants that are like six inches too short. So he looks, you know, even more ridiculous than he did in the jumpsuit. And he's so proud. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all, you know, just a little bit too tight, you know, a little bit playing off of kind of like the silent movie comedians having those suits that are just a little bit too small. And is that Jackie from Roseanne, who is the uh, Lori woman? Metcalf? Yeah, Lori Metcalf. Yeah. That is her name. Lori Metcalf yeah. shows up, and she's smitten with Doctor Peters, and and runs into Ulysses at the mall, and and basically makes him go on a date with her, to you know wild and unexpected hijinks. And it's funny <laughs> because when she when she meets him, it's like you you think that her infatuation with Doctor Peters has to be completely superficial because anyone. <laughs> would notice the difference between the two people. Like and you think you think less of her for being so dim that she can't see the difference. Yeah, and it goes beyond just the fact that she's so she's so aggressive about yeah. wanting, you know, she's running down the up escalator after him. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it, you know, she's a little thick in that case and it's not until she Gets left with the bill for, you know. Everything. Everything. <laughs> everything. <laughs> and then he asks her to drive to another girl's house. Yeah. Right. And the way he squirts her with the ketchup and everything oh. is completely On her designer dress, <laughs> yes. no less. And sticks her with the bill for those earrings. I don't usually eat things with so much color. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Lori Metcalf's hair in this is just amazing as well. I mean, that really... <laughs> clues you into how clueless she is just to have the curls and the long part and i don't even know how you would describe that but it's just remarkable well and it's I think, kind of that farrah fawcett yeah look with the, with the blown back the blown back you know uh, i think they do that on purpose too because when when she's walking with him she's like everybody's staring at us they must think we're a great couple and, and with his ridiculous hair and her ridiculous hair it's so good and yeah, so so much of this movie is uh, pointing towards this wedding. So I mean, if you want to talk about a, a feminist message, I suppose this whole like importance that is uh, being placed onto her sister's wedding, and I love that rather than the mom being so excited that her one daughter is getting married and trying to make Frankie feel well she kind of tries to make Frankie feel a little bad that she's not getting married but she is just offering anything and everything to cancel this wedding (laughs) (laughs) yeah for for various reasons (laughs) oh yeah and Polly Virgin's great as the mom oh my gosh oh she's amazing yes she she is uh she doesn't have a huge role but the, the time that she's on screen is hysterical particularly at the wedding when they're doing the photos oh yes 
And uh, the scene with the photos is so funny because um, Ida, I think, is the sister's name with the hairy armpits. And her her new uh, husband, Hector, are standing in front of this background of a beach. And it's on the beach. So <laughs> completely ridiculous. And the mom, Polly Bergen, is off to the side, you know, maybe a good three feet away from them just looking – so disinterested in being part of the picture it's so good yeah the physicality of that and then yeah to, to choose the artifice of the fake beach instead of the real thing <laughs> <laughs> and it it's shot the, 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 it's shot in such a way that you see the backdrop of the fake beach and it's perfectly lined up with the real beach behind it where like the horizon of water is matched up <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> it's so funny that I think plays into a lot of what the film's about too, because mm. you've got the human character and the android character looking so similar but being very different, and you know the TV image of people versus their real image, and the um, we call New Jersey a soap opera. Yeah, I, I guess that would be a soap, soap opera. opera. Yeah. You know, so I, I think she's having a lot of fun with kind of these dualities that yeah. are going the on. The, and the faces and the, people yeah. put on. Yeah. You know, right down to the, the mustache. That, you know, there's so many. <laughs> What's that thing on your lip? <laughs> I can't take you seriously with that ridiculous mustache. <laughs> yeah, there are so many uh, examples from all different characters and all different walks of life where they – are become overly concerned about the image that they're mm-hmm. even even when uh, Doctor Peters is told that he would look better if he got contacts and you catch him looking at himself <laughs> taking off his glasses in the mirror, it, all those little pieces and and it's not like hitting you over the head. They're just kind of cute and mm-hmm. fun. Well, let's talk a little bit about Trish. You mentioned her a little bit earlier. The the role that Glenn Headley plays because she shows up on uh, Frankie's doorstep basically or on her front lawn with all of her stuff. And uh, she has run away from um, Don, played by Hart Bachner, uh, best known to me for being uh, Han, in Han's Die Hard. Movie. I'm your white, white knight. knight. <laughs> <laughs> My son wanted to make a T-shirt of that. Hans, Booby, I'm your white knight. And there he's got like the long hair. Oh my God, he is brilliant in this film. <laughs> brilliant. Don't touch the hair. Don't touch the hair. <laughs> I mean, he was almost unrecognizable to me the first time I saw this. I was like, who is that guy? You know who I thought it was for two seconds is Bronson Pinchot. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, no. I was like, is that Balky? No. It's <laughs> like, oh, no, it's Hart Brockner. <laughs> the, the hair. There's the a hair. lot of hair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that hair is crazy. When we finally see him on TV and he's got that hair, and oh, my God. <laughs> and, and this uh, New Jersey. <laughs> I wonder why the show is called New Jersey. Because all all we see of the show is that he's basically like a plumber or a pool. He's he's some kind of worker, handyman, handyman who's sleeping with house like lonely housewives, <laughs> right? Rich lonely housewives, yeah, right. Or the sexy maid. Yeah. yeah, he's all you know, almost shirtless and tanned and oiled up. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, Trish is is really just a trip. And Glenn Headley is such a great actress. I mean, a great comedian. Mm. And she rem- she reminds me a little bit of, like, um, Judy Holliday, where she's got – it's like the dumb blonde, but not 
as dumb as you think they are and just really endearing and sweet. And she just has this way of walking that line between kind of being ridiculous and being absolutely charming. And I I think she has a real flair for that kind of comedy. Yeah, and she – that scene where (laughs) Frankie gets home and she is just bawling her eyes out – on the sofa because she thinks that she had sex with Ulysses to death. <laughs> right. <laughs> everything about that, the way she plays every moment of that, where she finally, it finally gets revealed that, no, he's just an android. Right. <laughs> and and then she's even more disgusting. It's even worse. <laughs> it's even worse. <laughs> I had sex with an android. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and she's so distraught, and, Fr- and Frankie's uh, reactions are completely baffling. To her. <laughs> yeah, help me get like, help me take off. his head off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> and scenes like that again, you know, the, it seems like that that are interesting because it could so easily just be irritating to have this one character crying her eyes out. Why? Why? But she manages to make it genuinely funny. And I think it's a shame that both those actresses, Glenn Headley and Ann Magnuson, never really had like a breakout hit or anything. Mm-hmm. They never really had they I don't think they ever got used to their fullest potential. And I think that's really a shame because I think they're both amazing. Yeah, and Ann Magnuson, you would expect her to be a lot more wacky in this, but she's really much more like the mm-hmm. straight man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, she she's she's the audience. She's the audience, right? In mm-hmm. a way, she can't be too wacky. But when you do get first introduced to her, she has almost that uh, Janine from Ghostbusters kind of look to her. And but she 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 takes that away. You know that that gets dropped right away, and you get to see who she is and what her job is, and and uh, and yeah, how magnetic uh, Anne Magnuson makes that character. I like that we get to know her through that uh, the opening credits, like we were talking about, with that uh, boardroom meeting, and then also in a very unusual way, the for one of the first times that she meets Ulysses, she kind of leaves him alone with her purse, and he goes through her purse, and you get to see what type of person she is because of what's in her purse. Mm-hmm. Oh my God! When he has the diaphragm, yeah, the diaphragm, but also she's got the book. This also explains why she dumped the guy. Yeah. it's smart women, foolish. Choices. So you, uh, you she's go. been thinking about getting rid of that guy for a while. Yeah, no, you're right. The book is <laughs> the book is a very big clue that this is not an early. This is a thought she's had for a while. Yes, but uh, yeah, when you talk about physical comedy, Ulysses in the diaphragm, <laughs> oh, blow, it, blow it like a balloon. balloon. Put it on his ear. Start chewing on it. <laughs> <laughs> It was such a nice throwback for me to to hear and see Donahue on the TV. Oh, I know. <laughs> and, of course, they've got, I mean, the perfect clip from Donahue with the woman talking about her biological clock. Right. Uh, and he's he's got the cigarette in his mouth with the filter end lit. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the way that that uh, uh, John Peters comes in and is just like, "Oh my God, she is ruining you." Yeah. <laughs> Teeth are just covered in lipstick. Yeah. She's turning you into a prostitute. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's so many ways that we can talk about this film, but just the uh, 
you know, the the wedding is the crux of it. Once we finally get there, and I think even more than that, the reception where mm. all of the characters kind of finally converge. We've got all of this stuff playing out, and um, we do get uh, uh, another. There's a lot of massages in this film. I have to say, <laughs> uh, one of the things that stuck stuck out to me early in the film was uh, a foot <laughs> massage that Ulysses is giving to uh, Frankie. But then there's the classic magic fingers. I haven't seen a magic fingers in a long time either. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think this is another thing that that I, they're they're poking fun at a little bit is is this uh, trope of um, massage being a, an aphrodisiac because mm-hmm. both of those scenes are played for laughs. I mean, <laughs> Ulysses is massaging uh, Frankie's foot with his chin. Yes. And Trish is trying to seduce Dr. Peters with a massage, and she's just karate chopping the hell out of him. And his face, he looks like he's in serious pain. I did want to say before I forgot, there was that great shot when uh, when Trish thinks that she's killed um, Ulysses, and we see his head face one way, and then his pants are down, so we see the crack of his ass. But yeah. <laughs> Such a short shot, but it's just so hilarious. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, there are a couple of John Malkovich butt butt shots. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he had a butt double. We don't know. Oh, well, that's true. It could, could be. be a body double. <laughs> yeah, stunt ass. <laughs> uh, why didn't you tell me my ass was this big? Ah, <laughs> uh, did we? Men- I mean, did we mention? The, no, we didn't. The, the, the tuxedo fitter? No. no. We did that in the pre-show. Uh, yet another another Jewish character. Yes. <laughs> who who play who's the character actor who plays the uh clothes? Oh, I don't remember his He's name. He's so good. She's oh, hilarious. It's, uh, Robert Trevor. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh, he was just so funny. When Ulysses is trying to put the clothes on and He's trying to put them on over his jumpsuit, and, and she can see his feet underneath. And she's like, no, 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 you got to take the jumpsuit off first and then put the clothes on. And, and the, the guy's like, so is it congenital? Stu- or contagious. You know, contagious. <laughs> the stupidity. And she's like, drugs. drugs. <laughs> but that leads to... I think what you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, Ulysses stepping out of the dressing room completely butt naked and the grand line. Is there something wrong? Nothing a rabbi couldn't fix. Of course, this is the best thing about Mr. Wright. <laughs> He's well endowed. <laughs> I don't think she had much interest in him before this. But she made a few jokes about Steve, candidate Steve, um, you know, not being too hard. Mm-hmm. So... Um, <laughs> So this was a, this was a nice surprise for her because she she says you know she talks to him after and she's like I hope I didn't embarrass you but I always thought of you as a child before this <laughs> right and he grew into a man right there <laughs> did Doctor Jeff there endow him to look exactly like himself or right. to make him look far better than himself <laughs> wishful thinking there yes so who knows we never find out well and i'm wondering if that's why trish kind of uh latched on to him later on in the film <laughs> oh i'm certain in hopes yeah. yes <laughs> i can screw this one and his head won't pop <laughs> off <laughs> uh, oh 
my gosh, I'm still picturing her karate chopping his back. It's so funny. <laughs> and she does that so well. Yeah, well, yeah. And yeah, I just love how all hell breaks loose at this. I mean, all the fighting that's going on, and and just the uh, you know, it, the one uh, it's uh, uh, there's there's dances that are being broken up. You know, mind if I cut in? Kind of stuff happening going on here. And I, and um, I do it, the one thing I really like about. Um, uh, uh, Steve is the way that Frankie keeps telling him, I can't take you serious with that mustache. And then later on, he comes back. He's like, okay, is this better? <laughs> <laughs> he shaves his mustache at the wedding. At the wedding. <laughs> and maybe with the same shaver that she had in her car shaving her legs. That could be. You never know. <laughs> God, that would hurt. That would hurt so bad. Oh, <laughs> Those electric razors are just garbage. And to, to shave anything longer than just stubble, you're in, you're asking for pain. It goes right from the reception to uh, you know Ulysses kind of revealing himself as a lovesick android, and you get the classic like 1930s superhero serial shot of newspapers, yes, <laughs> going through the printing press and the wild headlines of lovesick android, <laughs> and I think there's the uh, Inquirer one of. Uh, uh, Princess Die. Yes, <laughs> Princess Die is pregnant with robot baby. Yeah, <laughs> uh, maybe not quite so funny now, but yeah. And, and again, Frankie wakes up to the news. You know that mm-hmm. uh, that things have. Uh, uh, you know that that he's about to take off into space. I mean, really, the reason why we have the Ulysses program, which they don't really touch on too much until right towards the end, is this whole idea of him going off into space and somebody alone for seven years, just a regular person alone for seven years, really probably couldn't handle that. Whereas Ulysses, no problem whatsoever. But now that Ulysses has had love and lost it. Maybe he's not so keen on going away for seven years without her. And someone else is. Yes, yes. exactly. <laughs> Somebody who's all about that protein paste. <laughs> and and who's a thorough misanthrope. You know, if you don't like humanity, it's pretty easy to divorce yourself from it. Yeah, and it's nice that that was his dream. And he's basically has made Ulysses to fulfill his dream. But now he's kind of taking the bull by the horns. That, yeah, and not in the way that you expected. Right. Yeah. 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 It's funny. But yes. you get it. You get the happy ending in you know a nicely twisted sort of way. <laughs> and they even get the new Cadillac. Though I have to say, I liked her old car better. Yeah, <laughs> I thought so too. The Cadillac's a bit of a boat, isn't it? We got all right. So this is interesting. Is you get a, a an early kind of looking into the future look at what we have now with online shopping. Yes. <laughs> like you've got you've got a internet. Well, I don't know if they would call it, well, they, but there's a computer shopping. Uh-huh. Uh, where did this even come from? Who cares? Uh, <laughs> Ulysses is just sending her gifts left and right, including that Cadillac. And there's no repercussions from this right. shopping spree whatsoever. <laughs> well, maybe Jeff's account got drained in that. <laughs> That's the thing that I was thinking was that. The punchline for that scene, because she says, how can he afford to pay for all this? Or how can he, no, how can he shop for all of this? And then they cut to him, and it's the wide world of internet shopping or whatever, computer shopping. And then I'm waiting for the punchline to be him typing in Jeff's credit card number. Yeah. Or, no, it's Lori Metcalf's. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, he did watch her 
put that credit card in. I suspect it was the just the taxpayers. <laughs> <laughs> the government's paying for it. No, I'm holding on to Lori Metcalf getting that bill. <laughs> oh, I paid for a Cadillac. Hammers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it, and then what I thought was going to happen, and I know I shouldn't rewrite the film in my head, but then what I thought was going to happen was that Jeff left the earth in order to avoid having to pay his credit card bill. <laughs> That's when MasterCard devises its own rocket to chase him down. <laughs> the, the, the bill collector rocket. All right, let's go ahead and take a break, and we're going to play a series of interviews. First, we're going to hear from director Susan Seidelman, then from writer Lori Frank, and then also from writer Floyd Byers. Then we'll hear from actress Anne Magnuson, and last but not least, you'll hear a little bit more of our interview with actress Glenn Headley. And we'll be back with all of those after these brief messages. We asked the man on the street what he thought about the After Movie Diner website and podcast, but sadly he had never heard of either and was on his way to the doctors to have a mole removed. Or it could have been a badger. He wasn't sure. It felt bigger than a mole. Also, he wasn't sure how it got up there in the first place. Anyway, we asked all the famous people, like Michael Ironside, Fred the Hammer Williamson, Ted Raimi, Barbara Crampton, Cynthia Rothrock, and so on, that they've interviewed over there on the After Movie Diner website and podcast what they thought about the After Movie Diner website and podcast. But most of them said that if we quoted them, we would be hearing from their comical southern lawyers complete with bow tie, meat gut, and brow mopping handkerchief. So instead, we say who cares what anyone thinks of you after Movie Diner website and podcast. You are awesome just the way you are, so don't you go changing. If you want to see for yourself, go to AfterMovieDiner.com or find the After Movie Diner podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The After Movie Diner, doing it their own way since 2011. Badasses, Boobs, and Body Counts is a weekly podcast that discusses grindhouse and exploitation cinema. Your three hosts, Mike. It's a quick. <laughs> Thank you. Come again. Not racist at all. Mark, if you bend over and you have what is essentially a pubic cottontail coming out of the crack of your ass, you need to do some goddamn grooming. And listener favorite, Iris. I do not have sex with that horse. <laughs> will make you question your own political correctness while laughing at theirs. Episodes drop every Sunday and can be found by searching BB and BC Podcasts via Lipson, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and iHeartRadio. You can also listen to Episodes directly from the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. 
tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The viewer's guide to genre television. Welcome, everyone, to a special supernatural focus bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Fae Files. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we're going to hear from director Susan Seidelman. How did you get into filmmaking? Weirdly enough, I, I came from Philadelphia originally, and I thought I wanted to be a fashion designer because I always liked, um, I was always visual and I always liked design. And what happened was um, I went to a school for design, and my second year, I realized that I had to spend a lot of time behind the sewing machine. And at 19, that was sort of the last thing I wanted to do was be in college behind the sewing machine. So I started, I heard that there was this film class and I started to take, you know, sort of like a film appreciation class. And I'd always liked movies, but I never thought about making them or, or being a director. But I started to just love watching movies and looking at them in a new way. And coming from suburban Philadelphia, I really grew up pretty much on, you know, shopping mall movies. But suddenly in this film class, they were showing, the teacher was showing movies from, you know, French movies, German movies, Polish movies, animated movies, all, all, all different kinds of stuff I had never seen before. And I was hooked. When you were growing up in Philadelphia, did you get up to New York much? Or what was this experience like for you going to the big city or to a, a bigger city, I should say? Yeah, um, it was, I, I had always been infatuated with the idea of living in New York basically for movies I had seen as a kid. I, I wasn't that familiar with New York. And what happened was, um, you know, once I, I got interested in movies, and at the time I was, the, the school was Drexel University. They didn't really have much of a, a film program. This was in the early 70s. I took this one film appreciation class, and then I took it over again because he showed different movies. I just kept taking the same class over and started to think about, you know, wanting to sort of be more involved in film. And I applied to three schools that had film programs. One was Temple, which was basically a documentary program, and I got rejected. <laughs> One was the University of Pennsylvania, which was really a much more academic, scholarly, you know, kind of film criticism kind of program, and I didn't get in. And on a whim, I just applied to NYU, which was the most production-oriented of the of the schools at the time. And I, you know, went up for an interview, knew I loved New York, and um, got accepted. And uh, so then I went to NYU Film School, and as soon as I was there, I knew that it, it just felt right to me. I knew this was something, you know, I loved being around people who were thinking about films, making films, you know, in a, in a very hands-on kind of way. While I was at NYU, I started to make, you know, my, my student short films. 
and you know kind of luckily or or whatever they started to win some awards and that kind of gave me the confidence to you know continue making films that were a, you know the next one was a little longer and then the one after that was longer than that and uh ultimately that you know led me to making um Smithereens, which was, you know, my first low-budget feature film, which was basically made with no money and the core group of crew people I had met during my student days at NYU. Now, tell me about Smithereens. Now, that came out in, what, 82, I think? It came out in 82. We started it in um, 1979 or 80. It took, you know, two years off and on to make and basically, as I said, it was, you know, the last film I had done when I was at NYU was about a 45-minute short, and I had won an AFI award with it. And so the people that I met, my my, my friends and, you know, colleagues from, from NYU Film School saw that I was, my films were kind of getting out there in the festival circuit, and so they were supportive of my attempt to want to make a low-budget feature. So, you know, with very little money and certainly no plan as to what we would do after we made this film, we started the film in 1980. And after about two weeks of filming, the lead actress, while we were filming, we were doing a rehearsal before we, we actually did the take, was it was a scene where she was on a fire escape in a loft building and she fell off the fire escape and broke her leg and she was in a cast for, you know, six months. So obviously we stopped filming. And I was really nervous that I wouldn't, you know, because no one was getting paid. <laughs> I was really nervous that I wouldn't be able to hold the cast and crew together while she was, you know, recovering from this in- injury. But luckily, what was great was that during that time, I had two weeks of footage that I had filmed. I was able to kind of edit some of it, see what was working, but also see what wasn't working. And we cast some of the movie, recast some of the parts, and um, rewrite the script and take the film in kind of another direction. But now I had some some footage to show that I think kept people kind of, interested and inspired and you know and then we continued working on it again after um after this hiatus of of six months new york in the late 70s early 80s what was that like being involved in that kind of uh, i mean it was such a, a a turbulent time for the city it was you know in some ways that's what made it so great because a it was really cheap to live in the city and the east village particularly i mean it 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 had that mix of you know kind of starving artist musician you know painter you know uh, dancer you know all kinds of people who were just living cheaply in these you know tenement buildings basically and it also had a kind of you know um dilapidated um you know the city was falling apart it, we were either in the midst or just coming out of a bankruptcy crisis so it, in a way that's great for young people and you know artists who don't have that much money because you could live very cheaply 
And also you had, you know, the, 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 the city was pretty grungy. So in some ways, the streets were like a canvas. You know, if you walked around the streets, you saw painting all over and graffiti art and poster, you know, fly posters all over that were quite interesting and vibrant. To be creative, it didn't take that much money. You know, you could start a band <laughs> on the weekend and you were playing in some, you know, dive bar, but you had an audience, uh, you know, a couple weeks later. And also there was a real merging of people who were, you know, musicians, actors, filmmakers, uh, you know, all were working together, you know, Musicians were performing in filmmakers' movies as actors, and there was a, not a sense of, of being limited in, in a certain category. Well, that's one of the things that I really like about your films is that you have that integration of music and musicians in these prominent roles, things like Desperately Seeking Susan or Making Mr. Right, where you have these people who are normally known as musicians giving these great performances as actors. For me, it was all about finding you know, creating interesting characters. And, you know, for example, like in uh, Smithereens, I, I had mentioned that halfway into the movie, we, you know, when the, the lead actress, Susan Berman, broke her leg, we recast the role of the leading male and, and put in Richard Hell. Richard Hell wasn't originally in the movie when we started it, but one of the things I realized after watching the dailies and thinking more about the movie is that it would be great to get somebody, perhaps, you know, somebody who is kind of doing interesting stuff in the music scene of that time and, um, and use them as an actor. If I could get there, you know, what makes them interesting as a persona, get, you know, capture that on film somehow. And I think that's what made um, the Richard Hell character interesting in Smithereens was that his kind of uh, stage punky per persona was so much a part of the character he played on film. Now, how do you go with your first feature film, go from making that to suddenly being in con with it a few months later? Well, as I said, you know, it took a while. Until we filmed it, we, we had that, that hiatus, and then it took me a while to get it edited because I had no money, so I would, you know, edit a little bit, wait, you know, try to raise some more money or save some more money and edit again. I was editing, you know, I had rented a Steenbeck because this was all, you know, 16 millimeter that was sitting in my living room. But while I was doing that, you know, I didn't know much about the festival circuit. I was totally uncalculated in how I thought, you know, the film would be. I didn't think about distribution or an agent or, you know, any of that kind of stuff. But I had heard of the, the Cannes Film Festival. And at that time, this was pre, you know, internet, pre-computer. Um, I think I... Uh, Somehow, I don't know if there was a book about, you know, different festivals around the world. I literally just wrote out postcards asking for entry forms and mailed them out to, I think, Cannes, maybe Berlin or whatever the festivals were that I had heard of. And I got a package back in the mail or it wasn't in the package, it was like an envelope or a letter saying, you know, if you have a film, bring it over to this screening room, uh, it was in Times Square, like on 45th Street. And so I, luckily the film had just gotten out of the lab literally like a week or two before 
that that date, and I just took the cabs on the subway, <laughs> you know, to the screening room in Midtown and dropped them off and just didn't know what to expect. I mean, I certainly didn't expect to get accepted or I, I didn't know what to expect. I just dropped them off. <laughs> then got a phone call a couple days later from the the, the man, his name was Pierre-Henri Delot, who ran the director's fortnight saying, um, we screened your film. We, we liked it. I'd like to meet with you for breakfast. And he gave me the name of the place he was staying. It was a hotel in Midtown that had a you know, breakfast room or dining room there. And I remember saying to him, can you make it a little later? I'm not really a morning person, which was like a really stupid thing to say at that time. And he said, I think you should become a morning person and you should meet me. And I did. And I, I, I think so much in life is is a mixture of, uh, you know, kind of having the right stuff, but being at the right place at the right time. And so I, I met him for breakfast and he told me that he, you know, he would, would like or he's considering putting the film in the director's fortnight, but that there was certain other things that went along with it that I needed to provide, such as I would need to blow the film up to 35 millimeter because they didn't project 16, that I would need a publicist, that I would need posters and all these other things that, that, and a trailer or something. I mean, there were a lot of things that added up to a lot of money. I, I absolutely did not have at that time. And I certainly didn't have the, I think it was about $20,000 to blow the film up from 16 to, to, um, 35 millimeter. And, uh, you know, kind of ironically or fortuitously, this, this man and woman were sitting at the table literally next to us as, as, we were having this conversation and the woman looks, uh, you know, kind of turns towards me um, with a British accent and says, excuse me, I, I, you know, I overheard the conversation. I'm a sales agent and this is my partner. And if you will let us sell your film at Cannes, we will lend you the money out of, you know, whatever sales we make to blow up your film and hire the publicist and do all these things. And, you know, I said, sure. And she, and they became the sales agent for the film, took it to Cannes and sold it there. And as a result, you know, I was able to, to screen it in Cannes. But, but there was like another weird step that happened in between, which was that after it was accepted into the director's fortnight, the next week, I got a call from the head of the entire Cannes Film Festival who ran what was, you know, there's different categories in Cannes. Who, he ran the, uh, the main selection or the official competition and said, I saw your film and I would like to move it out of the director's fortnight, which is usually where young or starting out filmmakers show their first or second film. And I'd like to move it into the main competition if you'll let me do that. And I was like, you know, kind of stunned and obviously said, sure. And so it ended up being screened in the official, in the Palais, which is the big screening room, the the big theater in the official selection. 
It, it was nuts. It was it was definitely. I felt like you know I was in fantasy land. The whole thing was was just unbelievable because, again, you know sometimes when you have no expectations for anything, that's when the 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 wonderful surprises or the magic can happen. You know, I was I was totally naive, and when I showed up in Cannes with uh, Susan Berman, who was the star of the movie, I mean, we both felt like Alice in Wonderland. It was just, you know, just some weird fantasy world we had entered into, and and I, I guess what made it so wonderful is that we had such low expectations or no expectations for, you know, when we started this project for what would happen, and then all this kind of weird stuff happened. So what was that experience like for you? I mean, like, how was the film received once you showed it over there? Well, it was received pretty well. The sales agent who had brought, you know, paid for the blow-up and had brought us over, you know, sold the film to various territories around the world, and and uh, and that was pretty amazing. I think, again, the fact that the whole thing was so surreal and we had absolutely no... Uh, sort of expectations kind of made it endearing. We were so naive. <laughs> and I think that this, you know, ignorance is bliss to some ex- extent. You know, you, you're, I wasn't that nervous in the sense that, you know, I didn't, I didn't even know what was going to happen. And there was something kind of, um, genuinely, just, you know, wide-eyed about the whole experience. I, I, I think that, you know, in later years, sometimes the more you know, the more cynical you become or the more guarded you become. And you can't help doing that as you get, you know, as you get knowledge. But I, we were we were just dumb. <laughs> and that was great. <laughs> so how do you go from that to now doing Desperately Seeking Susan, which had a, a really big cast? And I remember that being a huge hit when it came out. When I was in Cannes, you know, usually... Had the film not been in Cannes, you know, as a young director, I would have been trying to knock on doors and trying to get, you know, meetings with agents and trying to get, you know, go out to California and probably try to get a job as a PA on some movie if I could. Um, um, but because the film was in Cannes and had gotten sort of well-reviewed, agents started to call me. And one of the agents that called me was a woman named Brenda Beckett, who was, uh, her partner was a guy named Jeffrey Sanford, who handled a lot of interesting writers. And anyway, after Ken, I started to, um, she started sending me a bunch of scripts, some of which were kind of interesting, but some of which just were, I don't know, were like, um, Oh, sort of like teenage, girly teenage comedies or something, because that's what the studio, being a female director, I guess that's what they thought I, well, that's what they offered me anyway. And I, and I, I knew I had, I had heard horror stories about other directors who had made like, a, especially women directors, who had made like a low budget indie film that got some acclaim. And then they went on to do their first feature film, and they felt overwhelmed. They either had a really strong, overbearing producer who was looking over the shoulder, or the studio was looking over the shoulder, and whatever magic or personality they were able to put into their indie film, they just were, the the situation just was too overwhelming. And so their first studio feature film did not do so well. And then they 
kind of disappeared. And I knew I loved making films and thought I had something to say. And I wanted to be in the industry for, you know, a long time. So I knew it was really important. I picked the right second, you know, first studio movie or second feature film. And I just read scripts for like about two years until I found something that I liked. And it turned out that the wife of the partner of this agency was a woman named Midge Sanford. And she and her producing partner, uh, Sarah Pillsbury, had this script that had been kind of around in various forms for a little while um, called Desperately Seeking Susan. And of course, when I was sent the script, I was intrigued by the title that it, you know, was desperately seeking me. The subject matter felt, it it was a theme that was something that interested me, this theme of identity and, and also the fact that it had two characters, both of whom I could relate to. Um, the character that was played ultimately by, um, Roseanne Arquette, who was a suburban housewife. I wasn't a housewife, but I certainly came from the the suburbs of Philadelphia, so I knew that world. And on the other hand, it had the Madonna character, who was this kind of funky girl living in the East Village. And for the last couple of years, I was a funky girl living in East Village. So I knew that world, too, that, that world of downtown Manhattan. So it was sort of a just a kind of interesting blending of these two worlds I both felt I intimately knew and had something to say about, and it was a theme that I understood, this theme of, you know, of kind of being bored in one life and wanting to be somebody else and reinventing yourself in some way, um, you know, was, was something that I personally related to. Also, the character of Madonna in some way was almost like the sister or cousin relative of the character in the the lead character in Smithereens. Now, I've seen Desperately Seeking Susan compared to Selene and Julie Go Boating. Mm-hmm. Was that in the script before you got to it, or it, did you kind of add that to it? And I also wanted to ask if that kind of relates back to some of these foreign films that you saw that were kind of blowing your mind back in that first film appreciation. Well, it's weird because when I read this script, I thought that there was something... Uh, uh, Celine and Julie also has these two very different female characters that kind of change lives a little bit, change places. And it also has this magical magical theme, you know, this magic club kind of, anyway, it has this magical setting. So I recognized that in the script when I read it, and I spoke to the writer and I said, God, this reminds me, I I had maybe a few years earlier gone to the New York Film Festival and seen the Jacques Levette film, Celine and Julie Go Boating, and I said, wow, this sort of reminds me of that, and the writer said, I can't believe it, that's one of my favorite movies, and yes, some of that is there in the script. Obviously, we both had similar tastes in the kinds of films we were watching and wanted to kind of, you know, infuse this movie with with some of those ideas. You know, you really took Madonna to a place where she hadn't been before as far as being an actress. You know, I know she had had the, you know, she was in a certain sacrifice and she was, you know, had that cameo role kind of in Vision Quest, Mm -hmm. but you really put her on the map as far as acting. How was that working with her, a musician turned actress, and and then also, you know, 
you had mentioned Richard Howell and then uh, also your your protagonist in Making Mr. Right. How is it working with these uh, musicians who are now doing more acting? Because I had worked with a musician turned actor in Smithereens, I wasn't nervous about the ability to, to, or my ability to get a good performance out of a musician who really didn't have that much acting experience. For me, the, the, the goal was really to try to take what was so sort of fascinating about Madonna as a persona, just as I tried to do that with Richard Hell, and to try to get that into the celluloid. <laughs> you know, not to, which, does involve acting. I mean, I've heard people say, oh, Madonna was just being Madonna, but it's very hard to even be yourself when you have to say scripted lines, which they were, and, you know, hit your mark, you know, get your light and do it, you know, five or ten times over and over again as you do different takes from different angles. So that that is acting. But the goal was to sort of blend the character of Susan with the character of the real Madonna enough so that she could be as interesting as I thought Madonna was at that time. You had such an amazing cast for that film and really so many of the movies that I've seen of yours you've been just had so many talented folks in that but I I mean the performances of like Robert Joy and Will Patton, John Turturro having Stephen Wright uh, in there just so great. I mean, what was that like for you being this fairly new director working with all of these people who either were names or would become names shortly they thereafter? They were not names. I, it was wonderful to work with these all these actors. But what was great was that, I, I first of all, I worked with a great um, casting director, direct, directing team, <laughs> uh, Billy Hopkins and, and Risa Brayman. They were just starting out. We were all sort of just doing our first, maybe second, in my case, you know, film. And a lot of these actors were also kind of just starting out, making a name for themselves, I think, you know, in theater or in comedy or music or whatever. But we were all hadn't really hit it too big yet. I mean, you know, Madonna had, yes, done done some songs that were, I think she had, you know, this was early days of MTV. I think she, this was before Like a Virgin. So I think she had, you know, Holiday and Borderline were two songs that were, you know, on rotation in very early MTV, but she hadn't done her big hit album yet. John Turturro was making a name for himself in off or off, off Broadway theater. Maybe he had done another movie before, but he certainly was at the early stage of his career, the same with Stephen Wright and Laurie Metcalf, who, you know, went on to other movies and also to star in the Roseanne TV show, was just coming off of um, a show that was a part of the Steppenwolf Theater. Again, that's John Malkovich and Glenn Headley and, and Laurie Metcalf, all of whom I then worked with in Making Mr. Right. But this was the early days. And, um, you know, sometimes it's, it really is about timing, just sort of recognizing, you know, you're, you're around people when, you know, creative people when things are starting to pop and you just sort of suck up that energy and, and it sort of helps everyone rise together in a way. And, and that's also true with some of the cameo performances. I mean, when I look back at, 
you know, who was in Making Mr. Right. It was a mix of, you know, young, great, talented actors and actresses who were just starting out. But also there was a lot of kind of cameos of these indie people who had been hanging around the indie film scene or indie music scene downtown music scene, but who were not that well known, but that added authenticity to the world, uh, you know, the world of the Madonna's world in the movie. People like Rocket's Red Glare or Richard Edson, um, you know, people who would end up being in, you know, Jim Jarmusch movies, um, John Lurie, of course. John Carlo Esposito's in there. Um, Annie Golden, who was in a band at the time. I know she's now in Orange is the New Black, but, you know, she plays a musician in the movie and just a little cameo. I, I got to work with one of my favorite um, actresses from, I, I was a big fan of Lena Vertmuller. There were so few women directors and, and basically no American female directors at the time I was in film school. So I looked towards the European women film directors and one of my heroes was Lena Vertmuller, who had done a movie called Seven Beauties that sh- that starred a American actress named Shirley Stoller. Um, who would also happen to be in a movie called Honeymoon Killers. Uh, anyway, so it was, it was just fun to be able to incorporate all these different kinds of actors and different, you know, from, from different kinds of backgrounds into, into the movie. Always blown away by just how many people show up. And then it's so nice that it is such a, a New York centric film and you really get that flavor of what New York was at that time. Mm-hmm. And it, it's just such a great time capsule of this kind of scene that we'll probably never see again. Well, you know, that's one of the things. It, it, it really is like a time capsule of New York at a certain place at a certain time. And Manhattan has changed considerably in some of those streets now where you see Roseanne Arquette running down a deserted, you know, very funky, boarded up, empty lot that's just used to be filled with crack dens, you know, is now a new uh, an NYU dorm or a Banana Republic. <laughs> so how did you go from that to making Mr. Right? Well, after I did Desperately Seeking Susan, uh, that was for a studio called Orion Pictures uh, that no longer exists. But one of the great things about Orion was, and, and one of the fortunate things for me was that they tended to be a studio that was pretty hands-off. Once they approved the script and the cast and the director, they pretty much left you alone. So... um you know, while we were making Desperately Seeking Susan, I didn't feel the pressure that some other first or second time filmmakers have felt with, you know, studio executives hanging around the set, looking over the shoulders, questioning all their choices or decisions. Um, so, um, you know, I really enjoyed working with Orion. And when the movie turned out to be a surprise success, because... I don't think they had, you know, they didn't have real high expectations for it. Uh, you know, they, I'm sure, hoped it would make some money, but they certainly, when we cast Madonna, didn't think she was going to become a superstar right as the movie was released. 
Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, they, they hoped it would do some business, but it did well domestically, but also internationally. It probably even did better internationally. Um, they, um, hired me, they gave me a three picture deal so that I was able to make two more movies for them. They kind of gave me a little bit of carte blanche as to what kind of movie I, I could make next because I, I guess they trusted me. You know, I got this script called Making Mr. Right and I thought it would be fun to try to do something very different than Desperately Seeking Susan but also kind of quirky and with a female protagonist in a genre that I hadn't seen before, which is sort of the sci-fi, uh, you know, even though this was a comedic science fiction movie, but I, but I had seen movies where, you know, men make the perfect woman, and I thought it would be a nice twist, a nice feminist twist on that theme. When it comes to Anne Magnuson, I've seen her play such a wide variety of roles. Mm-hmm. How did you decide to cast her? Well, she has a part, she had a little part in uh, Desperately Seeking Susan as the cigarette girl, but I had known her just from hanging around the East Village, you know, back in the early 80s. She used to perform at a club called Club 57. Um, it was this funky little sort of um, sometimes, you know, punk club. Sometimes it was sort of performance art, just weird stuff. So I had seen her do various characters uh, over the years. And uh, I auditioned her and I, again, just sort of liked something about her that I, I thought would make the character of um, the lead character interesting and a little different. She didn't approach it as kind of a from an actressy way. She she was an actress, but she was also a performance artist and had a different spin on the character. And now John Malkovich, he's a very funny guy, but he's usually not cast in comedies. Was there any hesitation as far as putting him in this comedic role? Not really, because I think you need a good actor to do comedy. It's sort of the same way I felt, you know, I I had the opportunity to work with Meryl Streep and She-Devil, and she had never done a comedy before. But I think um, that you really need to be a great actor to pull off comedy, in a way. Um, when 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 you're doing a drama... The situation helps you along. If the situation is dramatic, you know, whether the actor is good or less than wonderful, the situation adds, adds to the drama. Whereas in a comedy, if not good, you bomb, you know, it's, it's, it's much harder <laughs> to succeed in a, in a comedy because either the line is funny or the action is funny or it's not and then it just lays there. Uh, so I loved the idea of working with a good actor in in a comedy, and I also love the act the idea of working with somebody in a way you hadn't seen them before. Ultimately, how was he to work with, and what was that chemistry like between he and Miss Magnuson? He was great to work with. I mean, he's a he's a real pro, and and he's a funny guy in real life. I mean, he is quirky. And to me, it was also interesting because, and maybe challenging for him at that time, because he really did have to play two very different roles. He plays 
um, the scientist that creates the android and he plays the android and they both have very, very different personalities. So probably that challenge was maybe what made him want to do the movie. Yeah, I don't want to really geek out too hard here, but I've I'm very impressed with how the film looks and especially some of the special effects that you do as far as like Jeff and Ulysses being on screen at the same time. I mean, there are certain parts where they are looking at each other, interacting with each other in 19, uh, I'm trying to remember, what was it, 87? Yeah. Yeah. Shot in 86, comes out in 87. How are you doing these shots with the two Malkoviches? It's funny because I have not watched the film straight through in, in, in many years. And nowadays, you know, I mean, a high school student could, using the technology in their computer, you know, do split screens and, you know, have two actors interact with each other on their, you know, high school film. But back then it it was kind of complicated because we had to use what was called, you know, this again, this was really early days of motion control camera where we did the scene one one way with John Malkovich playing, let's say, the, the scientist, and then uh, there, I, we, I worked with a guy named Brand Farron, who also went on to do some special effects in the 80s for, I think, Star Trek, and he also worked on Little Shop of Horrors. But again, he, he had this system where he, you know, you could do a camera move and somehow early days of computer technology, you know, recording whatever that move was. And then we literally had to then go back and, and, and Malkovich would have to change from one costume into the other costume and stand in, you know, the position of the Android <laughs> and the camera who somehow this motion control contraption just repeated the same camera move again with, you know, Malkovich now with a stand-in playing the scientist and Malkovich now playing the android. But but it was really time-consuming, uh, you know, it would take hours to do that one shot. Uh, which was basically today would just be a split screen shot. Well, it looked terrific because I, I remember things like um, there was the one with uh, Lily Tomlin and Bette Midler, I think it was, where it was just like, man, all these shots just look terrible. <laughs> and yours is coming out at around the same time and it just looked great. So. Oh, okay. Well, thank you. Um, I'm sure if I watched it today, it would, you know, look pretty primitive, but uh Again, this was pre, you know, the, the the technology just wasn't out there yet. And, um, you know, and that was part of the fun of doing it. The other thing that was kind of fun about making the movie was, you know, I, I wanted to do a, a, a kind of, for lack of a better word, a sort of spoof on a low-tech vision of the future. And, and, you know, using, you know, part of the inspiration was, kind of the Jetsons, you know, or those kind of, you know, World of Tomorrow uh, movies that were made in the 50s about what the future would look like. <laughs> so if you look at the sets and, and just the style, the costuming and the styling and all that stuff, I mean, it was intentionally a kind of, uh, you know, tongue-in-cheek or, or just wink-wink, nudge-nudge image 
of a 1960s version of what the future would look like. How was that whole idea? Because, you know, normally, like you said, you see the mad scientist who creates the woman mm-hmm. and is all about perfecting the woman and controlling the woman. And in this one, you really kind of turn it on its head. How was that kind of, you know, taking this known trope and just twisting it like that? Well, that was part of the reason the script initially appealed to me was that, you know, I've always made films not only with female characters, but I do like female protagonists because as a female film director, especially at that time when there were so few of us and there were so few films that had strong female leads, I kind of felt I needed to fill in that vacuum. So, you know, taking a, a kind of um, a, a, a trope or a, you know, and, and twisting it on its head by flipping the roles sort of appealed to my feminist side. And, and also just as a filmmaker, it, it was fun taking, you know, movies that we were familiar, types of movies that we were, genres that we were familiar with and, 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 and just seeing them from another point of view. How was the film received when it came out? Critically mixed. There were some big supporters of it, like Roger Ebert, and there were some people that, you know, that were critical, that, that, that either said it was silly, and part of it was silly, and part of it was intentionally silly. You know, there were some people that criticized the script. There were some people that liked the script and kind of got the wink, wink, nudge, nudge tone of the of the art direction. I was waiting for the the, the other shoe to drop. After Desperately Seeking Susan was such a sort of surprise success, I kind of was waiting. You know, I knew I'd be suddenly scrutinized and looked at in under a microscope in a way that I had never been done before. I wished it was more successful. I'd be curious to see it again to see whether it passes the test of time. But I had fun making it and I had fun working with the actors and it wasn't a disaster, (laughs) critically. It was, it was not a, you know, it was somewhere in the middle. Some people liked it, some people didn't. When it came to uh, Cookie, I'm a huge uh, Columbo fan, mm-hmm. so I've I've always been curious. How was it working with Peter Falk? Well, he's such a pro, and he's so experienced, and he's such a diverse actor in that he does Columbo, and then he could do, you know, um, John Cassavetes movies, you know. He's a quirky guy, you know. He was a quirky guy, so uh, some of that, you know, personally, he's quirky, and as an actor, he was quirky, and some of that is what makes his acting so wonderful and what makes Columbo such an iconic character. But but he he definitely is a character. I mean, in real life, he was uh, he was he has his eccentricities, but he's also really a pro. Again, one of the things that I seem to like doing um, for, for whatever reason is taking genres and trying to see them from either a, you know a, a, a twisted perspective or a female perspective. So. What appealed to me about Cookie was taking the idea of a mafia movie, but seeing it from, you know, from this young girl's perspective, who's the daughter of a mafia don. And also it was a father-daughter story, which, which appealed to me as well. You had mentioned before, as far as working with Meryl Streep in one of our, I think it was our first comedy. What was that experience like? Well, she's such a great actress. And as I said earlier, I think you need to be 
a great actress to pull off comedy because you have to pull off the jokes and you have to you have to be able to you know go with perhaps an exaggerated character or um somebody that could be a total car you know cardboard character if not done well and you have to try to make them real and authentic in a comedic way and you don't have a dramatic storyline to kind of hold the audience there so it's really all about your performance and she is just really a, you know a brilliant actress and also really smart because I think also comedy of all varieties you know I, I think comedians are have to be really smart um, because comedy is intellectual and drama, I think, is emotional. Comedy goes to your head and, and drama kind of goes to your heart and your guts to some extent. It must have been interesting having Roseanne, who's there being you know, known for her comedy, and then Meryl Streep, who's at that point anyway, not known for it. I mean, nowadays you wouldn't blink your eye if you saw that she was in a comedic role. I think Roseanne was also really brave going up again. You know, she had never done a movie before. Now she's going to be in her first film opposite Meryl Streep. Um, that, that was real brave. But again, the film is about contrast. So, you know, in terms of the casting, you know, we thought it would be interesting to take a very earthy TV comedian and have her play opposite somebody who had been a very highbrow, you know, and Meryl's reputation still is, but, but certainly at that time she was a highbrow, dramatic actress, you know, have them kind of battle it out on film, I thought was interesting. Now, what are you working on these days? Well, I'm currently working on a, a project that's about a female boxing manager back in the 1970s. It's, uh, it's a movie. It's kind of a film noir. It's about a woman named, it's based on a true story, a woman named Carol Steinbler, whose father had run a very famous kind of hardcore gym in Los Angeles in the 1970s. In fact, it was the gym where they filmed the movie Rocky and the character of Burgess Meredith is kind of based on this guy, Howie Steindler, who really owned the gym. Anyway, Howie was found murdered in this car, in, in an abandoned car on the side of the Ventura Freeway in, in 1977. And his daughter, who had been up until that point a sort of a suburban housewife, first grade school teacher living in the valley, decided two things. One, that she wanted to find out who murdered her father. And two, that she was determined that she wasn't going to let her father's gym go under and she was going to take over the gym and become a boxing manager as he was. And so it's about how she tries to solve her father's, you know, murder, how she tries to deal with being a woman in a very macho environment, especially back in the 1970s, and also in real life how she falls in love with the police detective who was investigating her father's murder. So it's kind of got, you know, <laughs> a, a murder mystery, a love story against the backdrop of this very Damon Runyon-esque world of boxing, hardcore boxing, back when, you know, that was a real rough and tumble world 
especially in the in the 1970s. I'm sure you don't know anything about working as a as a woman in a field that's so male dominated. I, I know nothing about that. I'm sure you have some stories you could tell when it comes to that. Um, I don't have horror stories. I've heard female directors, you know, with with some really kind of bad you know, or degrading uh, tales to tell. Um, For me, again, coming out of the independent film world where I made my own opportunities to start out. You know, I hired myself to direct Smithereens, and that led to Desperately Seeking Susan. I really, you know, there, there were none of those kind of sleazy casting couch or compromised position kind of stories. I did, you know, I did raise eyebrows when I first, and I know I probably, you know, up until many years ago, you know, or up until only a few years ago, probably still did. But especially when I was younger, being a female, being, you know, just a little over five feet tall. So I was like a little you know, a little woman in a very male-dominated field, and I didn't look like what you would imagine the director looking like um, at all. You know, I mean, I have funny stories. Certainly, I remember on the set of Desperately Seeking Susan, one of the first few days where one of, you know, a big grip, you know, one of these union guys came over to me, assuming I was a PA, and, and asked me to get him a cup of coffee, and I went over and I got him a cup of coffee and gave it back. And I just sort of hung around until he, you know, took to watch his face as he realized that I was the director. <laughs> and that was worth it, you know. Um, but I think, you know, for me, I, one of the things I always kind of figured out early on was that I didn't have to pretend to be anything other than what I was and I didn't have to pretend to know anything other than what I really knew and so if there was something I didn't know and there still are a lot of things I don't know but especially when I was starting out and hadn't been on a lot of sets and I was working with you know these very experienced union guys I wasn't afraid to ask, but without feeling embarrassed about asking, just being direct and asking what, you know, what do you do or why is the light there or what, how can we do this? You know, to me, that was better than pretending to or feeling insecure and pretending to know something and then being embarrassed when, in fact, I didn't. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been wonderful talking to you. Thank you. It was wonderful talking to you as well. Next up, we're going to hear from Frankie Stone herself, Ms. Ann Magnuson. How did you get involved with The Hunger? Oh, that's a really interesting story, actually, particularly for film peeps and geeks. <laughs> I'd gone to New York in 1978 as part of a work-study program, and I was interested in, in being a theater director. So I was working for this off-off-Broadway theater called Ensemble Studio Theater. But I'd really wanted to be placed with an avant-garde theater group that was more like the Wooster Group or Richard Foreman, but the, the college didn't really understand what that meant. <laughs> I just knew this off-off-Broadway. So it tended to be a little bit more traditional 
but I learned a lot about the uptown theater world and um, that I didn't really want to be part of it. <laughs> and I spent all my days, well, all my nights uh, at CBGB's and um, Max's Kansas City. Interesting, and another little side note, of which there will be many because I speak in tangents. I'm, I'm very fluent in tangent. There was, they were shooting this movie called King of the Gypsies on the block that I had to walk through to get to the theater because it was on 11th Avenue and 52nd Street. And I still have never seen that movie. I've got to see it because Susan Sarandon was one of the stars. I want to see New York before it got completely gentrified because I, I hardly remember it now because it's Dubai on the Hudson, you know. But I was uh, I was going downtown a lot, and I was interested in you know hanging out with musicians and artists and people who liked avant-garde, wacky things, and seeing punk rock bands. I ended up running this club called Club 57 for a while, and there's going to be a big show about the club at the Museum of Modern Art that I'm helping co-curate that should be opening in the fall of 2017 that will be all about that time period and all the people who were involved, like Keith Haring and, and Jean-Michel Basquiat, even though his involvement in that club was pretty brief. But I was involved in that world downtown. I got in a what was more of an underground film, not like not like the underground films that were X-rated, but the Beth and Scott B, who had all these interesting underground films. In fact, I think that they might have gone by the... Was Underground Films the name of their company? Anyway, it was at B-Movies. But they cast me in Vortex, and I got to become very good friends with Jimmy Russo, James Russo, the actor, who was the star of that movie. This was their um, their first, quote, big budget. It wasn't much of a budget, but it was bigger than the other ones, which were done on nothing. And um, Lydia Lunch was the star with James Russo, and I had a co-starring part. And we became really good pals. And he let me know about some casting, and, and he actually told me uh, Mary Goldberg, who was a big casting agent back then, was casting Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America, and I was very excited. I wanted to meet Sergio Leone, and I got to. That was really, really a thrill, and he didn't speak any English. <laughs> My Italian is limited to prego and, you know. The Magello, that, that's about the limit of my Italian. But it was just a thrill to meet him, and uh, I didn't get that part. But Mary Goldberg remembered me when Tony Scott came to New York casting for The Hunger, and because uh, they they hadn't gotten hip to hiring models and making them look like New Wave sluts, they just hired a real one. I did an audition. The part had had dialogue, actually, that we shot, and then that didn't end up in the final cut, but uh, some of it was good. I opened up the refrigerator and nothing was in the refrigerator. And there was a shot, the camera was like inside the refrigerator. <laughs> well, you know, it had a false back. And I said, you guys on a diet or something? That didn't end up in there. So that is a rather long-winded answer to that question. I recently saw you in Sleepwalk, which I hadn't seen until just recently, and you were absolutely terrific in it. Oh, thank you. That Yes, that was the movie I did after Vortex. And again, another downtown filmmaker, Sarah Driver, and Jim Jarmish, who's her partner, he, he shot the film. And that was um, something Susan Seidelman watched the rough cut of that to decide whether I should be cast in making Mr. Right. So that was nice. 
that was an interesting film to do. And again, it's a, it's very evocative of what New York was like back then when it was uh, quite abandoned and dangerous, but offered one a tremendous amount of freedom because you didn't have to have much money to live there. You just had to have a lot of chutzpah and courage and naivete because it was kind of a miracle that those of us who survived were still alive because there were so many so many dangers lurking around, including some that got into people's bloodstreams. Yeah, it almost felt like a like a flip side to After Hours, where After Hours was kind of wacky, and this was somewhat wacky in its own way, but yeah, it definitely had that edge to it. Well, I remember when Joe Minion wrote After Hours, that was his name, right? I haven't said his name in so long. Uh, he, he wrote Vampire's Kiss, and he, my friend Barry Shills, who was part of the Cold 57 group, he produced Vampire's Kiss from the um, script that Joe wrote. And I remember when, when After Hours was written, and I'm, I have a hunch that the Terry Gard character was kind of based on me because I was hanging out with them, and I was so obsessed with the 60s. I mean, I might be a little too presumptive to say that, and maybe a little arrogant, but I, if I ever run into Joe again, I'm going to ask him. I could ask Barry, too. Because I remember when the movie, because he tried to um, hook me up with Scorsese to be in the movie. They went with movie stars. You really became a movie star with the next film, with Making Mr. Right. How was that going from being in these relatively small, undergroundish type films to being in this relatively major production? Well, it was a bit nerve-wracking. I, I felt that I had a lot of pressure on me to be a movie star, and I don't think I really became one. I was a bit stressed, but I will say that having been on other major motion pictures, very big budgets like Clear and Present Danger, Panic Room, that Making Mr. Right was only... Um, it wasn't that much different than working on on those smaller films because of Susan and knowing her from the downtown scene and the vibe on the set, for the most part, was very East Village. <laughs> I mean, Ed Lockman was a really cool guy, and he was a lot of fun to work with, and we laughed a lot, and Susan was, you know, had a different sensibility than your normal Hollywood environment and I would never have been cast in that movie if it hadn't been for for Susan and, and her her interest in in thinking and casting outside the box and it was in Miami so that was um, you know you're you're away from the executives and they can't really get in there and uh, and and make themselves <laughs> known <laughs> you know so and that was a real adventure and Miami was just like the East Village in the early 80s, it was really down on its luck. And all those fantastic Art Deco motel, or hotels and motels, but hotels that um, were on South Beach were not discovered by the uh, Eurotrash, and I say that with a lot of love, but um, by moneyed people, you know, that hadn't been developed. So it was still, a lot of those hotels, I'd say 90% of them were extremely run down. And again, that beach area was pretty dangerous. There was a lot of drug dealers and very uh, a criminal element, as well as all these old Jewish folks who were had retired down there. So it was really interesting. It wasn't 
felt like a, a tropical version of being in the East Village. <laughs> there were a lot of, like, well, I'm from West Virginia, so I can say this, white trash. But, you know, again, I say that affectionately. I actually always feel more comfortable in low-income neighborhoods, so it didn't feel that different from going from the East Village to Miami at that time. So I didn't really feel like I'd gone Hollywood because it didn't have that vibe. Oh, the production was a lot, you know, it went, it, it, it was, it had a bigger crew and, and people were, uh, you know, the, the, the stakes were, were higher, absolutely. And that's where the stress comes in. What was it like working with John Malkovich? It was fine. He's, um, you know, he's a total professional. He's, he's quite a snob, and I can say that without any sense of talking out of school because I think he's made that pretty clear. But, <laughs> He uh, he was fine. I had a lot more fun with Ben Masters, who played my former boyfriend or the one I break up with. He was a really funny, fun guy, and uh, we were laughing constantly. And and Susan Berman, who had been in in Smithereens, was in it, and uh, I knew her a little bit from the East Village. So it kind of felt very. Um, it, it felt a lot more homier than it would have than later subsequent productions like Tequila Sunrise, for instance. That went took me into the stratosphere in terms of working with the megastars because then you've got who were megastars at the time and, and the production was really, really super Hollywood. That was stressful too. <laughs> anyway, I haven't really thought I'm kind of going back in time to Miami then and thinking about I remember the costumes were very tight, and they got tighter as I discovered the joys of craft service. That's that's a very distinct memory. The production, I think, went a little bit over schedule, and we hit summer in Miami. I've never experienced that kind of humidity mixed with the heat. While wearing a wig and tight costumes, (laughs) thankfully only the last few days of the shoot, and then I got to go home to the East Village where I don't didn't have air conditioning and it was hot and humid. So. And there was no per diem or craft service. And I thought, wait a minute, how do I get back to that craft service and per diem land? Because of that break, and Susan really did provide me that, I was able to segue into getting professional TV and movie work that helped me earn a living, which by that point, was very welcome in my life because I had had a good seven, eight years of intense poverty as a struggling artist in the East Village, which is being increasingly romanticized in various TV shows, not TV shows, but there will be. I I know there's going to be movies and TV shows about that period of time. There's already memoirs are coming, are popping out and I think there's a lot of interest in that period of time in New York. But Susan and I, Susan Berman, Susan Seidelman, and I came out of, I think Smithereens is one of the best, if not the best movie that really depicts that period of time. And I don't think any narrative that will be made now or in the future will ever get get it right, you know, in terms of the tone and the way, the poverty and the, the starkness of it all. The Jim Jarmusch movies hint at that. And they don't hint at it. They are the early ones are it. Stranger than Paradise. Yeah, those shots of New York are just, and especially the use of the black and white just really kind of brings it out of just how stark it was. Yes, 
and I think in Smithereens you see there are really great shots of uh, the camera following Susan from above, and you get to see those burnt-out blocks, and uh, it was uh, it was an interesting time. I remember telling my dad, you've got to buy one of these buildings. They're selling them for nothing if you refurbish it. My father didn't have money, but I thought he would have enough to buy a building. <laughs> he just brushed that off like a mosquito, but man, that was uh, that would have been a good investment. I think one of the first times I ever saw you was when you were in A Night in the Life of Jimmy Reardon. How was that experience for you? That was actually a lot of fun because Bill Richard, the director, the writer and director, is just a, a complete character and he's so full of joy, the joy of filmmaking and he's smart. And I had years earlier seen Winter Kills and thought that was one of the most brilliant movies I'd ever seen. Great stories, all of us, stories about making that and how he got Elizabeth Taylor in it. And he's, he is a, a really cool guy. And I had, it was really fun. It was really, really fun. I was squeamish about the material, you know, and having to do this seduction scene with River, who was so young. And it really was, it's a bit cringy, but when you, not a bit, <laughs> quite a bit, but Bill told me, oh, well, in the real story, I was 15 and she was 38. Like, oh my God. <laughs> he actually released another version of it with his original narration and um, the soundtrack that was created by Elmer Bernstein. And there was a huge brouhaha at the time when I think it was 20th Century Fox, took it away from him and put a different narration with River narrating it, and they wanted to sell it as a teen movie, like a dream a little dream kind of thing. certainly wasn't that, so Bill had a meltdown, and <laughs> it was that was an interesting experience. But I think he was right, because when he had a screening several years ago for all of us who had been in the movie, and Matthew Perry was there, it was one of his earliest films, I think, uh, it really works better with the grown-up voiceover. And Bill is delivering his own voiceover. And he's a he's an actor, too. And he was in um, My Own Private Idaho, or My Private Idaho. That's the title, right? Playing a, very, a version of himself, kind of a Falstaff character. Although the real isn't quite that seedy. <laughs> but, the, but yes, but his original, it's not really even original cut. It's the same cut but with his narration as an adult speaking about it in hindsight with the Elmer Bernstein uh, much moodier soundtrack changes the whole sense of the film. I thought I was watching a whole different film, but it wasn't. So, you know, it, these experiences are very interesting in terms of uh, learning more about the art of filmmaking. It, it, it's such a crazy business as anyone who's read anything about it knows, and it's so collaborative. There's so many elements that go into it. It's a wonder that any of them, any of it turns out. It's just a miracle to me that any movie gets made. Such a hard thing to do, and it's a real uh, military operation. It's run like a military operation. Although I'm very excited about the way people are doing things now. I, I finally entered the 21st century and bought an iPhone, so I'm going to be making my own little little movies, clips, you know. 
that's what I liked about the East Village scene back in the day is that it was a very DIY. It was DIY. And you had, because you didn't have any money, you had to learn how to be creative without it. And I'm seeing a lot of, a lot of people doing that. What have been some of your favorite roles that you've done over the years? Well, somebody asked me that recently, and I have to say, the, my favorite role that's something that I didn't write for myself was a theater piece. It was Amy and David Sedaris's play, The Book of Liz. And the character of Liz is this Amish woman, but in the play, they're known as the squeamish, not Amish. And uh, she goes through this, this Union Joseph Campbell hero's journey arc that's really quite touching, as, as well as being very, very funny. And I think it's one of the best roles for um, an older actress, middle age, or I guess she could be anywhere from her mid-30s, which I guess in Hollywood is considered, you know, as old as Methuselah. And, and with HD, you certainly start looking that way after about 40. But um, it, it's an excellent part, and it's one that um, I use uh, uh, as my template Kind of my guiding force, or the spirit animal for that character was Gioletta Messina in La Strada. As I was doing the play, I realized now I'm feeling more like Buster Keaton or Charlie Chaplin. And, and then as I read more about, about La Strada, she was using those silent movie actors as her, her spirit animal. So that was fun. And it had a lot of, that part has a lot of depth. And I think Frankie making Mr. Wright has elements of that that I was able to, that Susan uh, was able to show in a way that I don't think a male director, certainly at that time, would have, unless they were gay. <laughs> a George Cukor could have. I don't know. I can't remember. I can't remember what I've done. Well, Sleepwalk was a lot of fun because it was a real character part. Oh, Cabin Boy, of course. Oh, I love Cabin Boy. Yeah, Cabin Boy was lots of fun. Yeah, we've actually done a whole a whole episode on Cabin Boy, and then uh, probably uh, maybe two years later, I was finally able to speak to Mike Starr, and uh, God, he tells some great stories as well. Yeah, that was great fun when they were doing Polaroids. Which, since I started being in movies, you know, they use Polaroids for continuity. So I have Polaroids of me with everybody I worked with, notable people, until they stopped using Polaroids. But then a friend of mine gifted me one when I was doing the last film I did with Christopher Walken. So I got a Polaroid with Chris that he signed. So I have these, this collection of Hollywood Polaroids. I should make a little book out of them. One of me and Russ Tamlin went, because we were at the special effects house at the same time, and he was getting fitted for his shark fin while I was getting fitted for my, my, my extra arms. That's the real joy of making films for me is getting to meet all these these other people and they have, you know, these legends and you get to hear great stories and the camaraderie of it all. That's what's fun for me. The stuff between action and cut is actually kind of the stuff I have to do in order to get all this, these other goodies. And I don't mean the craft service table. I mean meeting people and getting to talk and have and hear their stories, and boy, I got some great stories out of Chris Walken. But a lot of them I have to keep to myself. That would be the professional thing to do, right? Because I told him, you have got to write a memoir. He said, no, you got to talk about people then. You know what? I like that. He's got this old-school gentleman quality about him where 
He doesn't want to talk about other people, at least in public. <laughs> but I heard some good stuff in private. Can you tell me a little bit more about, uh, speaking of Mike Starr, I know he's also in this. Can you tell me a little bit about First Jerk on Mars? Oh, yeah. that's. Um, I Actually, maybe you can tell me about it, because I haven't talked to Adam, the director and star, in a long time. So I don't even know what's happening with him. Well, I get to play his mom, <laughs> because you hang in long enough, you start playing the moms and the grandmoms, waiting for some grandma parts. I play Adam's crazy ex-hippie punk rock mom who lives off the grid in Topanga, uh, Topanga Canyon. And I'm kind of not giving him a whole lot of nurturing. I'm not exactly a nurturer. She's living in her own world. She's probably done too many drugs, and now she's a conspiracy theorist. So there you go. <laughs> but it was really fun, really fun part to play. And we got Adam had written a really good script, and he let me improvise a little bit, and it was um, it was a real easy shoot one day. Right on, right on a, a crazy hippie woman's Topanga Canyon horse farm. So I got to live out my my dream, which is I'm really a hippie chick. So it was nice to play somebody like that who might have a few fleas on them instead of you know a woman and a, a powerful woman in a suit who's barking orders to everybody. Those are the parts that aren't really that interesting to me anymore. But I'll play them if the, if the paycheck is there. You've done so much over the years, the writing, the acting, the, the music, all of this. What is what is your favorite? Well, you know what? It's always sort of, I guess, well, I was going to say what you're doing at the time, but that's not really true. However, I just finished a CD that is out now, and it's called Dream Girl. And I think being creative on my own terms is always my favorite thing to do. But having said that, it's nice to be hired to to deliver the goods for somebody else on their terms, but in a collaborative way. That's because you learn more about yourself and, you know, doing things that you weren't maybe aware that you were capable of. So I do invite that into my life and I'd like to have more of it. But when there is a lull, I have so many ideas and projects that I I want to create as, a, as an original performer and musician and singer and filmmaker or whatever, just as a creator that, um, you know, I'm never at, at uh, a loss of, for things to do. So making the, the CD was great fun and I'll be doing a lot of live shows in the fall and the spring and the fall and the winter and probably into the spring and recording more. I've really, really enjoyed getting into the studio and just doing it on my own. I produced it myself and worked with some other musicians and got back to this Bong Water style of storytelling that I um, did a lot of back in the uh, late 80s and early 90s with that band. And I have these crazy dreams almost every night, and I write them down every morning as a writing exercise just to keep the writing skills going and i um i have plans man <laughs> i have plans i'm always excited to have the plans change and have a happy accident happen as chris walken likes to talk about that in terms of of doing a scene like letting having plans but being loose enough to let accidents occur and then 
taking you to new crazy places or more stable places like getting a, you know, a gig in a mainstream movie so one could get a paycheck and then finance all these other things that no one else wants to finance. I have to say, your website it offers just a wealth of information, so many good stories. Your, your writing, I mean, the, the whole Clubland section is just fantastic to read. Oh, thanks. Well, I'm going to be beefing that up big time. I actually am being pressured to write a memoir, so that might be in the works very soon, at least about that period of time. Actually, I'm thinking about focusing mostly on the year 1982, which is when I did The Hunger with David Bowie. And yes, there are stories there. <laughs> Very good one. In 2015, a company called Plastic God put out a series of uh, Nick Cave dolls. Were you gifted with any of those? Yes, I yes, he gave me one and then he came over and he wanted me to sign five of them and I for some reason I did that. Now he's selling them on eBay, but I don't get any of it. So, I don't know why I did that, but I guess I'm helping somebody out somewhere down the line. That'll trickle down to uh, somebody. <laughs> I'm very curious about this uh, uh, did you say it was a MoMA show that you're doing? Yes, at the Museum of Modern Art they um, are doing a film series about the films that were shown at Club 57 and those were programmed uh, mostly by Tom Scully and Susan Hannaford who who I met back in, in that time period and we they produced uh, something called the New Wave Vaudeville Show and I directed it and that launched the career of Klaus Nomi. And that's all outlined in the documentary, The Nomi Song. And then we all started um, working on their smaller club called Club 57, which was on St. Mark's Place. But there was a Polish fellow named Stanley Strakaki who ran both places. So he brought the three of us in, and uh, we all worked our individual magic to create a space of uh, just rampant, crazed, wild creativity where Keith Haring did his first art shows and Kenny Scharf and uh, Wendy Wilde and John Sachs and all these uh, different people that we all knew and brought into the fold. And there's going to be a show about all that energy and creativity that happened between 1970 it's about 1970, well, early 79 to early 83. And it's going to be a film series featuring films that Tom and Susan and other people programmed. And then a gallery show featuring ephemera and video and fashion. And it's just growing and growing and growing, featuring all the myriad of people who were, who were involved. Many of them have passed away from AIDS and other, um, other things. So it's going to be a wonderful tribute to them and to that time period. So it's going to be very significant and exciting. And uh, I'm hoping to put together my own book of the ephemera that I made. I made a lot of flyers and, and calendars and collages. And it was really just a very, very exciting time where we did a lot on no money. And I think it might inspire young millennials and other folks. So let's see. It's good. I think it's going to open in the fall of 2017. People can go to my website, and I'll keep them updated. I'll keep adding things to the different um, pages that I have about the clubs and all my activities there because it's time to start pulling all this stuff out of the archives and sharing it with the world. I'm trying to remember, were you involved with some project uh, about zines a few years ago? 
I curated a show with Kenny Sharp at a gallery here in Los Angeles in Culver City called Royal Tea. And Dazed and Confused, uh, Richard Metzger from Dangerous Minds did a piece on his blog and also in the magazine Dazed and Confused, which is also on their website. So there are a lot of photos from that show on there. So the show at uh, MoMA will be a version of that, but much more thorough and more professional. Well, I'm really excited. That sounds like a terrific thing. And just even looking at just the, which I'm sure is a fraction of the stuff that's on your website, I can't imagine a whole show just dedicated to that. Oh, yeah. It's going to be really, really great. And all sorts of people who um, didn't get their due and their credit, like Tom and Susan, will be prominently featured. And uh, because I went on to do movies and TV, my name is very much associated with that club, but um, it was a real group effort. So it's going to be great for everybody. It's As I joke, it's our gold watch at, at retirement. I met an astronaut who took me to the moon. I met an astronaut who took me to the moon. He drove the lunar dune buggy just like the kind the Manson family stole. This is the second in our third part of the interview that we did with Glenn Headley, who played Trish in Making Mr. Right. Did you originally start off wanting to be a uh, actor or more of a dancer? Because you seem to have a performance in your background. I went to the high school performing arts in New York, and they uh, really stressed the importance of body awareness on stage, you know, because the big thing at that time was that you really needed to start your career on stage because that's where you really learned to be an actor. And then at the high school performing arts, you basically study your craft fully half the day, or at least you did in those days. And so they were very sure to tell us that, you know, on stage, you have to be very body conscious and you have to move gracefully and, you know, all this stuff. And so I had already been taking ballet. And after, you know, listening to my, my teachers talk about the importance of one's physicality on stage, I decided to just take more dance. And plus, there were a lot of kids who um, whose craft at the school was, was dance, you know, and they, they became professional dancers after. But because I hung out with some of them, you know, they were very disciplined and they used to, you know, dance half the day at school, but then they would, um, they would take like two to four hours of dance classes after school. And it kind of inspired me to, to take a lot of dance. And at that time I was taking modern dance. And when did you kind of make the move into the theater world? Was that shortly after high school or after college? Well, I always knew I wanted to be an actor, and I mean, that's I was I was in um, high school to study acting. That was my my major there. And then when I when I left high school, I went to a college in Switzerland that was supposed to be just for like a year, but I ended up really liking it and staying there. And one of the things I did was I um, I started a drama department there that actually ended up giving students one credit. I mean, it wasn't a lot, but one credit. <laughs> to take. And, um, and I actually got a scholarship to stay in school. So I got to, you know, practice that way. And, and I, and also I wasn't in all the plays in the college. I mean, I was in some of them, but I tried to really encourage people to be 
interested, you know, without me in the thing. And then when I got out of college, I waitressed and did like, you know, whatever kind of job. I decided that New York, I, you know, I went back to New York after college and I decided that New York was just too restricting. It was like really expensive and there didn't seem to be a ton of theater going on. I happened to visit Chicago and when I was there, I only went for a weekend, but when I was there, I, you know, I opened up the Sunday paper and I just couldn't believe that there were these little theaters there that seemed really active. And one of them was run by this really young guy. And so I ended up moving to Chicago really to start at my theater career because I thought I would have a better chance of doing it there than I would in my hometown. How soon after that did you join Steppenwolf? When I started in Chicago, I started with, well, like, you know, I got cast in like just a play independently, but shortly thereafter, I got cast in this group called the New Works Ensemble Theater that was actually at the, you know, the theater I told you that was run by the very young guy. It was actually at his theater. And this theater, by the way, that was run by the, this young artistic director was where David Mamet had done uh, his plays, where he started out. So... So it wasn't just some, like, you know, shabby little place. They were doing really cool stuff. They had this company of actors to just work on new stuff, this this New Works Ensemble. And I got cast in that company. I left the company after, like, six... They weren't really finding... We did one new play, and then after that, we did The Diary of Anna Frank, and, and I was Anna Frank, and I was, like, I just... I didn't understand why we weren't doing new works. And I said, I just, I just want to work on new plays. Like we, so anyway, I, I, I left that company and then I auditioned for um, this production of Curse of the Starving Class by Sam Shepard, who was one of my favorite playwrights ever. And, um, and I was cast as Emma. John Malkovich was in that show playing the brother of, of my character, Wes. The Steppenwolf Theater came to see the production and I already knew about them. I'd already seen their stuff. I already thought they were great. I actually had taken a class. John and I were both students in a special class with this uh, New York uh, acting teacher named Bill Esper. And John and I had already met in that class, so I knew who he was. But the Steppenwolf Theater came to the show, and um, they needed to have new people in this in their company um, to expand. They'd already been around for a few years, and, and they asked me to join. Can you tell me about how you got the role for Making Mr. Right? Well, Making Mr. Right, Susan Seidelman had seen me in a play a couple years prior, like maybe three years prior. That was a very successful off-Broadway play that Laurie was also in, Laurie Metcalf, who's also in the movie. Okay, so Susan brought me in for Desperately Seeking Susan and said that she thought I was, you know, really like my acting, but she said that, you know, she was kind of new and she needed people who had, even if they were really good, have more experience for the studio. They didn't want to just have all these new people. Because believe it or not, Madonna was kind of new. I mean, she was big, but she hadn't been in a movie. So I didn't get the part. Rosanna Arquette got the part. And then, but Susan said, I'm really sorry, and I want to put you in my next movie. So when the next movie came along, it was Making Mr. Right. She asked me to come in. She didn't just offer it to me. She asked me to come in and audition for it. And I auditioned for it. And she said, oh, I'm going to let you do this, I, you know, because I really liked you from, you know, before and blah, blah, blah. At that point, they didn't have anybody for the part of the robot. 
And I came home and I told John, I had already told him it was a really good script. I thought it was funny, you know. And I, I said to him, you know, they still haven't cast that part. He kind of wanted to do a comedy because John is incredibly funny. I mean, he is as funny. I, I honestly, our entire time we were together, he probably made me laugh every single day, even when I was mad at him. He's really funny. You know, he was in the position where people just always thought of him as serious. They didn't realize that he's actually really funny. So he was interested in doing something funny because he knew no one would really see him in that way. You know, or they'd see him as funny and menacing, but not just funny. I think John's agent told them he was interested and he didn't, of course, have to audition. They just, like, they found out he was interested and they were like, oh my God. And they offered him the part. And so, incredibly, we both got to be in the movie and Lori was in it too. <laughs> uh, L- Lori Metcalf had been in the first movie and now she was in the second movie. So, that was just serendipitous. That doesn't seem quite fair that you had to audition and he didn't. He had already been in a really successful play in New York that had gotten like, like you couldn't get better reviews. And he had also already gotten some parts. He'd been in some, he'd gotten some good parts. He'd already got, he'd already had an Academy Award nomination. He'd already done Killing Fields. He'd already gotten a nomination for Places in the Heart. I mean, he didn't need to audition. I, on the other hand, had nothing like that. And that is why I had to audition. Even though she liked me, I think it was she needed to have me on tape for the studio also. Don't forget, they had, I, I hardly did anything. They didn't know me from Adam. When did you get to the point in your career where you didn't have to audition anymore? I still audition. You know, sometimes I don't. A lot of the movies I've done, I don't, of course. But then there's other things that I have to audition for. You know, it's it's actually quite surprising. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say that most of the stuff I've done... Since Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, people just ask me to do, okay? But there's other things that I've done that I've auditioned for, and there's things I've auditioned for that I didn't get. You know, Mr. Holland's Opus, yeah, they gave it to me. I mean, like, you know, I came in for a meeting, they gave it to me. Mortal Foss, I'm pretty sure I auditioned for that one. Dick Tracy, you know, they just gave it to me. I mean, I could go on, you know, but I'm saying, like, for instance, I just, I'm in this uh, HBO miniseries, The Night Of. I, I had to audition for that. Now, that was, in that case, it was kind of understandable because she's sort of like a kind of a badass lawyer. And I, I frankly, I, I couldn't even believe they wanted me to audition for it because I was like, I I can't believe, of course I'd love to play a part like that, but I can't believe someone's even thinking I could. Not that I couldn't, but I'm, what I mean by that is that it's it's hard to believe sometimes that directors or studios or whatever will let you do something very different from, you know, cause I have this voice. I mean, it just, and so it's hard sometimes for people to even think I could do something different. So it wasn't a big surprise that I would be asked to audition for a lawyer. I was just shocked that they even thought I was, you know, I, I was surprised actually that I got it. Can you tell me what are your memories of making, making Mr. Right? My basic memories about that are, Probably not that interesting. I mean, because I, they're not about the work per se. They're more about that um, I loved the architecture in Miami and <laughs> I thought it was really interesting. And at that time, it wasn't all built up the way it is now. So it was in its kind of downslide period. So that whole deco area by the beach was really run down. There were like two two clubs there that had like just started out or two 
I don't know, they were maybe one was a club and one was a restaurant and they were like the only things going around there. And it was still like a lot of just elderly people walking around. And so I remember, you know, going to the beach uh, with the cast and Susan and, and I think Ed Lockman, who I liked very much, the DP, and, you know, hanging out at the beach and going to that little restaurant. And then on all the days that I wasn't filming, um, I would go drive down to John Penny Camp and I would go snorkeling. So, like, when I think of movie, I think of that, which is probably not interesting for people who would listen to your stuff because they want to hear about, like, the movie stuff. But the truth is, that is what I think about. <laughs> so, I, mean, I think about snorkeling. <laughs> No, it's funny because when I spoke to Ann Magnuson, that was kind of the same thing. Not the snorkeling, but she just remembers the architecture and then the area where you guys were filming being a little sketchy. I don't remember it being that sketchy. I just remember that it being like the really built-up area with the really, you know, big buildings. So the the big, you know, new buildings and and um, and there were a lot of them. And you know, the hotel that we were in was I don't know, we were on like the twelfth or fourteenth floor and was just a very different feel than the little two and three story little deco buildings further down the beach, you know, in the, in the part that's now so popular. So, um, I, I don't, I don't really remember it being sketchy. And I remember seeing a woman like this was just, cause I hadn't, I think I'd been to Miami maybe when I was little or something. I didn't really remember. So I was kind of fascinated with the people who want to sit in the sun all the time. And I hadn't really seen that. So that was, I saw a lot of that when I would like go downstairs or go out by the pool area or go to the restaurants around there. There would just be people who were in their bathing suits who like just did that all day. So there was like a woman who was, you know, looked like she was in her late seventies, who was just basically like an alligator in a, in a bathing suit. And I, and I just was like, wow, that, now that's dedication. Yeah, I guess it's just, it's addictive, right? The sun sometimes for people. So anyway, so I just think of things like that. Or I also remember something that happened when we were there, which this is going to make me sound incredibly naive, but Paul Newman wanted to do Glass Menagerie with John. And he wanted to come down to Florida and talk about it. And somehow or rather it was arranged. And, and I'd already met Paul. He'd actually seen me. Uh, on Broadway, and, and he'd actually seen me um, in a play um, uh, up in Williamstown. It, you know, so he'd seen me, in other words. So it wasn't like I was just someone he didn't know. But I was the one who was supposed to pick him up at the airport and like drive him to the hotel. And <laughs> this is going to sound so incredibly stupid, but I was terrified that he would be like completely mauled at the Miami airport. I mean, I just couldn't imagine that Paul Newman would show up at the airport and not be like surrounded by hundreds of people or some people, you know, running after him. So I actually called the airport. (laughs) So insane. I called the airport and I didn't know, I think I called the airline that he was coming in on. And I said, I wanted to talk to someone at the desk there. And I said, listen, I'm going to be picking up Paul Newman. And I just wondered if there's like security or something, because I'm just, just me, you know, I'm just whatever I was like 27. I don't know how I was young. It's like, I just, is it, is it going to be safe for me to pick up Paul Newman? Because I just thought maybe we should have guards around or something. And they're like, it's fine. Um, 
And so when I went to pick him up, like he just walked out of the airport and there wasn't even like one person. <laughs> uh, you had talked a little bit about um, dirty, rotten scoundrels. What was that experience like for you, especially to work with two, I mean, especially Michael Caine, very seasoned actors? Well, of course, I knew Michael Caine. I had seen Alfie, you know, because when I was younger, too, I just really researched older films. And I, at that time, I used to, like, watch everything. So I knew him, of course, um, and I was just really uh, excited to to be working with him. And he and I um, and Steve, we, got, we just got along super well. And even on days when I wasn't filming, they would have a car come pick me up and bring me to lunch with them because they went to lunch every single lunchtime in a restaurant, not in a tent or anything. You know, I, I don't really think we had that. Like usually on a movie, you know, you have craft service. I'm not even sure we had that. I think maybe everybody went to a restaurant, but whatever. They would have me picked up to go to a restaurant with them. So it was super fun. Also, I got Michael. I love Cockney rhyming slang. So I, I, I knew some and I wanted him to, you know, teach me some more. That was really fun. And then, so of course, we would, we would talk under our breath to each other, you know, doing Cockney rhyming slang, slang during filming, which was, you know, very childish but funny. And then he and I got into like a complete giggle fit one night when we were filming. It was an all night shoot. And I don't know, the situation just, you know, it was just funny in that we're, we're supposed to be all dressed up. It's like a casino scene. So we're all dressed up. They had a lot of extras for this and they were all told to come, you know, dressed to the nines. So there are these, you know, people in gowns and tuxes and it's, you know, it's summer and it's hot and we're in this amazing hotel, you know, in um, Capsarod, and it's very beautiful. But, you know, Michael and I just got, like, really giddy knowing how the extras, you know, because I've been an extra, too. And it's it's usually when you're an extra, if, if, if you don't do it all the time, if you don't live in a place where they hire extras all the time and everybody gets used to how it works, you don't realize as an extra how much time it's going to take. And you don't know that, for instance, you know, if you're if you're dressed in your gown or your suit, that they're not going to let you take it off. And you're going to have to wear that for like 14 hours while you're filming. And what starts out as like really fun halfway through ends up to be just annoying. And so Michael and I, you know, saw some people who started the evening out like super happy. And at this point, because they were like wandering around in the background, you know, of our scenes. And at this point, they just kind of looked, not all of them, but some of them just like annoyed. And it's just the contrast of how they started the night, you know, big smiles and tons of energy and then like dragging their feet and looking just kind of pissed and fed up with the whole movie magic. And Michael and I just, got hysterical and you know it's just one it just what happened was then we couldn't even say our lines to each other he was doing that stupid german accent and i could not look at him without completely breaking up and then you know the whole crew was laughing and the director was laughing and you know everything was good but the thing is michael and i couldn't stop so can we do another take and then we would get part way through and we would just laugh and so you know after a few takes the director was not laughing with us anymore. And he said, you know, guys, you really, okay, 
it was really funny at first, but you, you have to pull it together. It's late and we got to get this happening. We were like, okay, no, we understand. We're fine. We're good. And then, you know, we just, we just couldn't do it. I mean, we couldn't. And, you know, and the, and the more nervous we got about it, kind of the more we laughed. So anyway, it was, uh, it was quite something. He and I are two people who cannot look at each other in the eye uh, without, you know, without wanting to laugh. And I did another movie with him, too, where the same thing happened on that one. You know, I just, we can't look at each other. Sorry, I've, I've kind of peppered you with questions as far as all of these particular roles. What have been some of your favorite things to do over the years? Well, I really liked working on Dirty Round Scoundrels, and I really liked working on Dick Tracy. And I really liked working on um, Mortal Foss, um, Breakfast of Champions. I liked working on Lonesome Dove, did I say that? Of course, Lonesome Dove was a TV show, but I mean, it felt like a movie because it was a miniseries. And I liked working on, I don't know, I can't even remember them all. Basically, I, I liked working on all of them for one reason or another. There wasn't really a movie that I didn't enjoy working on. There's always something that I really like. I think the Dirty Run Scoundrels was probably a little, a little special just because, you know, we laughed so much every single day. I mean... We just laughed every day, and we were in a beautiful spot, and it was a great time of year to be there. We just got along super well, and, you know, we just laughed. It's very, very nice to laugh all day. I really liked you in um, Bartleby, by the way. Okay. Okay. I don't like myself in Bartleby, but okay. Yeah, I forgot. I don't think I'm good in Bartleby. (laughs) I forgot about that one. Yeah. Yeah, no, I don't. In fact, I really think I'm bad in that. You know, it's just people have different, you know, it's fine. The director likes it. I mean, you know. Do you find you kind of called out Lonesome Dove as being a television show? Do you find that that line is kind of blurred as you've been in the business more as far as the way that TV and movies are kind of blending these days? Because that was a miniseries, it really did feel like a film. A TV show, like a half-hour show or whatever, does feel, or even a one-hour show, does feel different in that it's much faster. So, like, they don't have a lot of time to dwell. And, you know, I, I, I remember the first time I did something for television, I couldn't believe we were going to do a few scenes in one day, whereas on a movie, you know, you kind of work. Well, it's actually changed a bit in the movies. They're making them faster now. But when I started out, it would, you know, you'd do, like, maybe one to two scenes in a day, not five or six, like what would happen on a television show. You know, when I did ER, it was a ton of shows and a ton of scenes in a day. So, and I did nine shows of that. You know, I had an arc that was like nine, nine shows. And it was just, wow, I couldn't believe how fast they could move, you know? And, um, and plus you just have to learn how to memorize really quickly. And, you know, and that there was a lot of technical language. So you just, you know, had to just be quicker. Yeah, I remember hearing stories of just how tough it was to memorize some of those lines from the medical shows, especially ER. And my character, she was a, um, she was a, supposed to be this, you know, she was a pediatric surgeon. So I also had to work with these little fake babies. Okay, in the in the intensive care, that just looked so real. These little things could breathe. I mean, it was just killed me. And and I was also six months pregnant, you know, or five. I did that from when I was like five to seven months pregnant or something. I'd be in this, in this intensive care unit with these little babies on these monitors, you know, under these plastic 
screens and it was just very hard. I mean, I just, you know, it was very, very hard because it looked really real and it was sad. Next up, we have writer Lori Frank. How did you start off in show business? What kind of prompted you to go into that line of work, especially writing? When I graduated from Yale, I became a journalist, and I was always interested in film. When I was in college, you couldn't really study film. It was really the beginnings of film study, the years that I was there. I worked as an editor at McCall's. I founded a magazine called You Magazine. And then I got a job working for um, ABC News Close-Up, which was the documentary unit of ABC News. I did a series of documentaries for them on various subjects. And then um, I left ABC and I worked for a company called Tomorrow Entertainment Medcom, which did a series called The Body Human for CBS. I won a directing Emmy for Daytime. Then somebody that I work with at Tomorrow Entertainment recommended me to Saturday Night Live, and I did a couple of short films for Saturday Night Live. The first one was Eddie Murphy's first film. It was called Pros and Cons, and it was the the short where he introduced Kill My Landlord. Um, it was about a prison where all the prisoners actually were plagiarists and it was based on Jack Henry Abbott and Norman Mailer. It's 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 a, a really famous SNL short. I got the directing bug, and um, I applied to the AFI, and I arrived in L.A., and fresh off the banana boat, Floyd Byers, who I co-wrote Making Mr. Right with, was introduced to me, and he decided that uh, he wanted to write a screenplay with me, and I told him no a thousand times because I had just become a directing fellow at the AFI. And he wouldn't take no for an answer. And we sat down in the car and we came up with the idea for making Mr. Right. And the next day we pitched it to a few producers and one bought it. And all of a sudden I was a screenwriter. I can't believe that you did pros and cons. That is, yeah, one of the most famous skits. I mean, images by Tyrone Green and just that wonderful cinematography that you have when he's in the cell. I mean, that is, it, it is one of the classic SNL skits. Oh, thank you. I'm very proud of it. I really had fun doing it. It, it it's, it's really my first piece of fictional directing. Oh, so good. It, it's so funny because I never really think of who directs some of these things, which have just kind of become part of your life. You know, I mean, I don't know how often I still probably inappropriate will quote at Tyrone's poem. Each year, Rockland sponsors a poetry festival. Tyrone Green is this year's winner. Images by Tyrone Green. Dark and lonely on the summer night. Kill my landlord. Kill my landlord. The watchdog barking. Do he bite? Kill my landlord. Kill my landlord. Slip in his window. Break his neck. Then his house I start to wreck. Got no reason. What the heck? Kill my landlord. Kill my landlord. C-I-L-L. He was a piece of work. 
even then, that was his, you know, his very first thing. It was practically his debut. He was just made outrageous demands in the middle of the night. We filmed it in some prison in um, in New Jersey, some empty prison. And, um, you know, he didn't like his shirt. He didn't like the collar. He it was just a million things. But he sure was talented. How did you guys come up with the idea of Mr. Wright? I don't really remember, but the minute we had the idea, we just could run with it because it was it was just really timely and and funny and um full of possibility. Yeah, it's so unusual. I mean, I've seen too many Pygmalion type stories of the man changing the woman for him, and this is such a, a great way that you kind of take the whole thing and and turn it on its ear. Yeah, that's the way we felt. And it was just perfect for us. Floyd had met Susan Seidelman, and she liked the idea right away. So that was really exciting. And by coincidence, my college roommate at Yale was Sarah Pillsbury, who had just produced Desperately Seeking Susan with her. I always hear these horror stories of writers who write for years and years and years and never get anything directed. Maybe they get it optioned and then it'll go into turnaround forever. But it sounds like you kind of struck it just right with your first project like this. It was unbelievable. I mean, it, 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 it was the scenario that never happens to anybody. We were so lucky. Did it change much from original draft to the final film? No, uh, it, it, it really didn't. And it was really quick. And they did hire people to rewrite us at the end, but it didn't turn out that they used very much of what was rewritten. It bore a tremendous resemblance to what we sure did. Were you uh, around when it was being shot? I mean, how was this for you kind of seeing your first creation kind of come to life? We weren't on the set at all. They did invite me for the last day of shooting. So that's all that I saw. I got Barbara Ling and Ed Lockman involved. They were two of my best friends. Barbara did the production design, which really functions as a character in the film. It's, it's so exquisite and it's so perfectly rendered. And Ed Lockman is, is also a genius. It, it was like family. The, the whole way through. You know, I, I think that the only place where we really differed from Susan's vision was in the casting because we really wrote it for somebody like Arnold Schwarzenegger, some guy with a perfect body. You know, John Malkovich was brilliantly talented, but he's just not that personification of Mr. Wright. I can see where you're coming from with that. I was, I'm curious though if the, other characters are not Ulysses, but the, the doctor character. I mean, Malkovich kind of nails this whole curmudgeon kind of type angle. Was your character that much of kind of a, a, a difficult person to deal with in real life? Yeah, was, was he that curmudgeon? Yes. I mean, we really wrote him as a curmudgeon. I mean, Malkovich completely nailed the, the scientist part, but, you know, he, he should have been a sex god. And he certainly wasn't, <laughs> though he was adorable. You know, I, I can see that being even funnier as far as this real-life person who looks so perfect but has a shitty personality versus this robot that looks so perfect and has, at the start, no personality and wants to get one. That, that's a, I can see that playing even better. 
but I think Susan just had Malkovich in mind. I know she had Anne in mind, and nothing could dissuade her from that. The real revelation for me of the movie is Laurie Metcalf. She is my favorite character, and I think she was just magnificent. Are there any characters in the film that are close to you? I guess it would be Trish, the friend, who is just uh, obsessed with her husband. I I thought Hart Bachner was also brilliant in the film, and I really loved those characters. They really came to life for me. And it was really an ensemble. I mean, they really loved each other. And, you know, Malkovich was married to Glenn Headley. And, you know, and they had all worked together in Second City going back to um, the Michelle conversation in Chicago. Did you go to the premiere or, or, or what was it like when you first saw the film? I just loved so many things about the film. I don't, I don't think we had a real premiere. I think it was just basically a screening. But, you know, the film is so adorable. Again, Barbara Ling, we're just bringing the sets and the costumes and and just the colors of the film. It looks like a cartoon, but it has all this depth and elegance, a wonderful realization. It's like it was so seamless that I, I didn't even pay attention to it because it was just so perfectly conceptualized. I mean, it, the whole thing was incredible. It was like a fairy tale from from beginning to end, from the, from the minute I got into the AFI. And then while I was in the AFI, uh, I made a film called Dummies, and I discovered, you know, Johnny Depp, Sherilyn Fenn, and Max Perlick. So that was happening sort of concurrently to this. So it was really an exciting time for me. Did Mr. Wright open a lot of doors for you? It did. It's like the windows opened for me. Right after making Mr. Riot, I got a job directing Teen Wolf 2. And just before I was beginning to, you know, sign the contracts and everything, it was going to star Justine Bateman. And uh, her father decided that it was not, it was sort of untoward for uh, a girl to be a werewolf. And he cast his son instead, and he decided he was going to be the director. And when that project sort of fell apart, you know, I was involved in the development of a million other projects that really never came to fruition. My next film was uh, a film, it was Love Crimes. (laughs) That just turned out to be a a debacle. Then I wrote the first live-action video games ever, and I was hired to write and produce and direct the uh, first serialized computer series for MGM, which was also ahead of its time and never really made it on the screen. Yeah, it's like I'm looking at your CV and seeing just 1992 and in 93 just looks like it was so busy for you with Red Shoe Diaries, In Excess uh, video game, the Marky Mark video game, Love Crimes, and then one called Prize Fighter, another video game. I mean, that's just, that's intense as far as how much work you were doing at that time. Well, it was really fun because, you know, and I also directed the, the first really reality show series for ABC before I came to California, which was really exciting. And then that, too, was ahead of its time. So, so many of these things were, you know, it's, it's not always the perfect thing to be the first. Um, it's better to be the third and to have it really succeed. Can you tell me, why was Love Crime such a debacle for you? 
Well, it, it was such an interesting project because it was based on the Richard Avedon rapist, this guy who who went around portraying himself as uh, as Richard Avedon, and he got all these women to fuck him and give him money. And then, of course, he was an imposter. And so uh, Lizzie Borden came to me with a script that was written originally by Alan Moyle. And uh, we worked on it really hard, but it was very sexual, very true to its subject. And Minimax was the producer. They hated the script. And instead of firing me and hiring another screenwriter, they decided to go ahead and make the film. They made it with with Sean Young and Patrick Bergen. And then... In the middle of, of, of the film, they fired Lizzie Borden. They hired another director. They then hated the, uh, the new director's work. They fired him and they rehired Lizzie. She made the film that she wanted. And it was a love story between, you know, this female prosecutor and the Abaddon impersonator. They cut out the love story. And it was the heart of the film, so they, they 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 rewrote it in editing, and they left nothing. It, exactly like the technical guidebook for how not to make a movie. Right. Jeez. Ah, oh, that's terrible. How was it working with Lizzie? It was great. You know, Lizzie's really smart, and she's really talented, and she really, you know, she's she tells the truth on on the screen. It was just too much truth for them. Did you kind of get? I don't want to say drummed out of the business, but it seems like you went from being the hot, hot flavor to I don't see a whole lot of stuff on your CV anymore. Or are you doing this whole thing that I was talking about earlier where you're writing stuff and nothing is getting, you know, everything's going into turnaround? The business really changed. When I first got here, they would actually pay you to develop a script. All of a sudden, that ceased to be the case. You just, you know, you, you, you pitch people something and they say, okay, you know, write it on spec. And you, you would just write it and rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it and you never get paid for it. And so it, it, it became a completely different business. In the middle of that, where, uh, I was really trying to figure out how, how do I make a living? Floyd sent his daughter to a charter school. And, you know, charter schools support themselves by having all these fundraising auctions and things. So he went to a fundraising auction, and he bought a photograph of the L.A. riots. And the photograph was by a cinematographer whose name was Phil Parmet. And it's it's really an iconic, brilliant photograph that really captures a whole sense of the pride and the fear and the way that the whole... L.A. riots just tasted, and he took it to a framer, and they were really impressed with the photograph at the framers. They asked about the photographer, and Floyd had this amazing epiphany, and he said, you know, this photographer is really a cinematographer, and all cinematographers started out as photographers, and um, they must be this incredible body of work by these brilliant cinematographers. Why don't you have a show? So he gave away this idea, and he didn't think about it again, and he left, and he got his picture framed. And a year later, he was walking down Melrose Avenue, and this guy comes running out of a storefront, an empty storefront, and it was the framer from the framing store, 
and he had left and started his own business, and he said, Floyd, remember that idea you had about showing the still photographs to cinematographers? Why don't you do it with me? I have this empty gallery space, and uh, it would be a great idea. And Floyd said, well, you know, I'm a screenwriter. I don't know if I have time to do this, but why don't I ask my friend Lori and see if she's interested. She knows a million people. So, and a million cinematographers <clears throat> through my friend Ed Lockman, who shot Making Mr. Right. So he asked me, and I thought, wow, that is such a cool idea. I bet there's amazing people out there. And so we went into this art business together, and um, I just fell in love with it. We did Still Moving, which was our gallery of the still photographs of cinematographers for two years. And then Floyd wanted to go back to writing, and I decided to open my own gallery. I did that for the next 11 years. So are you still doing that today? You know, I, I stopped doing that, and now I'm selling antiques and, and, and vintage pieces. Um, and I've turned my life into a giant treasure hunt. It doesn't matter what the medium is. It, it's, it's all the same message. It's just, you know, it's just like directing a film. It's finding the stories in these objects. I know I probably should have asked about this a, a little bit earlier, but the whole story of Teen Wolf 2 just sounds amazing. I can't believe that it was going to be Justine Bateman at first. I had never heard that before, and I don't know why. Yes. I mean, we, we had the whole thing you know, laid out. I was going to write the script and, and direct the film, but... The movie is just, it's notorious now. I mean, it was just being one of the worst ideas ever, worst films, worst realized films. So I, I can only imagine that what you're doing was really going to be good in comparison. I mean, it, 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 I would have loved to have seen that. Yeah, me too. You know, there was this incredible production executive named Bonnie Lee, who, when I was at the AFI, uh, this was even before Making Mr. Right came out, sort of found me through pros and cons, and also at the same time found Tim Burton. Uh, he had just done Frankenweenie. She became my champion and his champion. And, of course, he, he went on to um, become Tim Burton. I went on to uh, sell antiques and vintage things online. So <laughs> there you have it. Well, you must be just getting rich off the royalty checks, all right? Even they've dried up. I mean, the, when we closed down Blockbuster, the royalties sort of came to an end. For a while there, it was like manna from heaven. You know, it was just gifts that kept kept on giving. Can you tell me a little bit more about Dummies? I, I have read about that film for years, but I've never actually seen it. It's about two boys who are driving at night. They think that they've run over a kid, and they don't stop. But it's actually a mannequin that's uh, fallen off a truck. And so there's just all these recriminations and guilt and fear. Finally, one of them goes back to the scene of the crime and he realizes it's a dummy. Sherilyn Fenn and Johnny Depp were in that. Were they dating at the time? Uh, they, they, they met each other in my living room um, when we were when I first first day of casting, and they were a couple for quite some time after that. She had a, a little red Corvette. They were just steaming up that Corvette between takes. <laughs> they just fell instantly in love. I mean, instantly. You could just, like, feel the body heat from the moment they laid eyes on each other. Max Perlick, who I, you know, I just was a kid from Fairfax High School that I found on the street. 
the three of them really formed a a solid unit and um Dummies was actually his passport for the series that he did, um, 21 Jump Street. That's how he got the part. I mean, it's, it's just an exquisite little film that was actually shot on beta. Uh, somebody recently tried to get a copy from the AFI and they just couldn't locate it anymore. I'm glad that you found Max Perlick because he is definitely one of my favorite faces in Hollywood. Yeah, he's just a, he's a great guy. He's a, he's a, he's just a wonderful person. And I, I know the three of them really had fun making the film. We shot part of it at the oil fields that are in Baldwin Hills, like when you go from LA to the airport. We snuck in and, uh, I, I asked, uh, Johnny to ride one of the oil wells. And we did that, and we got into so much trouble. I almost got expelled from the AFI. But, you know, there was never a person who was more up for anything than Johnny Depp. The guy is the god. What can I say? And I'm sure for every director that had the same experience of, that I did of just, just being in awe of, of, of this person's talent and just warmth and openness and curiosity and intelligence. What a combination. Well, Lori, thank you so much for your time tonight. This has been great talking with you. Oh, a total pleasure, Mike. Thank you so much. Last but not least, we have writer Floyd Byers. How did you get into the business? Peculiarly, I think that's the way, the way everybody. I was a novelist in New York, doing, um, you know, developing like dilapidated loft uh, buildings with some friends and. Um, Publishing novels that made no money, and um, but I'd spent five and a half years in France. I mean, while I was back in the West of New York and doing this stuff, someone from France called me up and said there was this very distinguished Russian director living in California, Shirley MacLaine's boyfriend at the time, who needed to work with someone. He didn't speak English well enough, and um, he needed to work with someone who was either fluent in Russian or French. I said, well, hey, that sounds like fun. Perhaps. I didn't know. And they said, would you meet him? We'll send you out there to meet him. And um, I hadn't been in California in a while, so I said, sure. And But the first thing, he wanted to see something I'd written, so whatever I was writing on at the time, I sent it, I sent him. Later he said he couldn't make, hide, hide no hair out of it. <laughs> but but he liked, what, he liked what he perceived. And we talked, and his name was Andre Konchalovsky. He's a great director, but he's a better screenwriter. He had written um, Andre Rublev, one of my favorite movies, which I saw in Paris. It's like a four-hour picture that Tarkovsky uh, directed, but that he wrote with Tarkovsky, and he wrote Slave of Love with his brother, Nikola Mikulkov. So we wrote this, you know, these French people paid us uh, a bunch of money, a lot of money, more money than I was used to making, to um, write the script. One didn't get made, but but the next one that I wrote with him on back-to-back to the first one was called Maria's Lovers, and that got made. And so I was kind of launched, and... Um, there you go. I went back to New York and then came back out there to write something for Hill Street Blues. Um, and they asked me to be on staff and, um, I didn't like it too much. And Lori was out there and I had this idea and we started writing, making Mr. Right. So that's how it happened. How did you and Lori meet? Well, we both went to Yale. She was friend of, <clears throat> she was a good friend of some friends of mine. I'd met her in New York and, um, she was fun, charming. She had a lot of friends that, you know, were, that I knew, you know, and, um, you know, very gracious person, and I was fucking around in California. I didn't know, you know, because I was waiting to do this thing for Hill Street, <clears throat> and I eventually did one thing for them. You know, I, I like to work, so 
I had this idea, and she thought it was great. So we said, okay, well, let's let's write it on spec, which I did. I wrote everything on spec pretty much, except that thing for the with the Russian. And um, she was like, no, let's go out and see if we can set it up. And um, that was a wise idea, actually. And she knew someone who who knew an agent. We went and pitched it to the agent, and the agent said, oh, that's a fantastic idea. And then, and we came in, we had a short pitch, and then he sent us out to uh, three or four extremely minor producers, but big players in the industry in some ways, and they all wanted it. And he wanted us to sign with this group called Barry and Enright. They were big TV producers. They did, like, TV game shows. I can't remember which one exactly, but we went in and pitched to them, and he, the head of that company, the film division, was a longtime agent who was super connected, named Mike Weiss, and he had an assistant who became a big player in the industry, and so is named uh, Lynn Hindy. And they liked it, and they paid us, again, they paid us a bunch of money to write it. Not No fortune, but more than I was used to making. I'm certain more than Lori was used to making, and we wrote the script. Now, once you're done writing the script, I mean, I'm sure there's the whole revision period and all that kind of stuff. Who are you kind of beholden to at that point when you're making these well, revisions? Well, kind of, it's kind of interesting. I mean, we wrote the script, and then we had to do – you know, the people who paid us the money, it gave it, they gave us some notes, and um, so we're beholden to them. That's Mike, that's Mike Weiss, Lynn Hindy, called this group called Barry and Enright, but we only saw Mike and Lynn. Lori at that time was going to AFI and was more important to her, her future directing career, which never really materialized. So, so the rewrite, she would give an hour a day. That was it to the rewrite. So I kind of carried that and we finished the rewrite and it was, it was really pretty good. And I had met Susan Seidelman through a friend of Lori's actually at Lockman, the, the, the DP. And I had done a little bit of work on Desperately Seeking Susan writing the, because I just had met her the same summer. This is at the same time. She just, the, the, the guy, this guy, Gary Glass and desperately seeking Susan was, he was a Genzu knife salesman. And, uh, she didn't like that. And I suggested he, you know, that he be, have his own water paradise. You know, they're selling complete waterworks and she liked that. So I wrote his, his whole thing as, a, you know, as his party scene and his advertisement that he's in. And so they shifted it all over. So he was on camera rather than being off camera as a director of uh, Ginsu knife sales. Anyway, I, I did that and she liked it a lot. So I had access to her. And after we had rewritten it, it was up to Barry and Enright, the producers to, to set it up. They went to a few places. People liked it, but they were turning it down. They went to Orion, for example, which is where Woody Allen stuff was made at the time. And uh, Orion, Barbara Boyle was head of Orion, and she you know, she liked it, but turned it down, you know. And then I gave it to Susan, and Susan liked it a lot. And then and and desperately seeking Susan had had come out and been a big hit unexpectedly to everybody. And once she liked it, then <laughs> in the space of a week or two weeks, Barbara Boyle and Orion went from passing on the project to bringing us in because they were going to do a rewrite and make it a go movie. Just like that. So they made it a go movie and um, Lori and I were given money to, to rewrite the script. And we went to New York to work with Susan on the rewrite. Well, we worked first alone, I guess. And then we were having a more kind of traditional romantic ending in which 
it was like Cary Grant and somebody, you know, like Audrey Hepburn, Mr. Wright, and she ended up with the scientist and not with the android. Susan didn't like that for her own reasons, probably because she was very, very ambivalent about men in general. And so she said, well, I don't know if I can make it about that. It just seems so contrived. And so I came up with this idea of Frankie going off with the android and sending the guy up into outer space. And that she loved. And so that's really what greenlit the movie. They say we went to New York and we did the rewrites with Susan. We did a rewrite and Lori didn't really like the circumstance. Lori and thought that Susan would be competitive with her. And that's true. And Susan thought Lori was going to be competitive with her. And I was the kind of guy in the middle. So eventually Lori went back, went back to California and it was, a, and then, you know, and I finished, and I finished another rewrite. And that's the one, you know, that Susan decided, right, you know, to go with. Was it always called Making Mr. Right? Yeah, that was my idea from the get-go. That was my idea, Making Mr. Right. And we didn't, you know, didn't we, you know, we didn't know. When I had the idea, I didn't know how it was going to be done. Uh, you know, I brought that to the party, but Lori was deeply involved in everything else. Like, how was he going to be made, right? Was he going to be a chemical experiment? Or I was dating some woman who, or most of the women that I saw in New York at that time, <laughs> they were always complaining about guys. And I, my thought was, well, if they ever got the right guy, would they know what to do with him or would they even want to be with him, right? So that gave me the idea of making Mr. Right, right? So from the get-go, that was the name. But the form that it took, well, that Lori and I were in that together, totally together. Was he going to be an android or whatever? I didn't know. could have been a chemical experiment for all I knew. So when Lori and I started talking about it, that's we decided the android was the best way to go, part of the space program and all that. When you guys were working together um, on the first couple drafts of this thing, how, what was your working relationship like? How did you divvy it up? We didn't. We got in the same room and um, you know got on each other's nerves. <laughs> That's what we, 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 I was at the typewriter and she'd be there suggesting one thing. I guess it was a typewriter. No, it, was a, it must have been a. It was right there. It's a transition from typewriters to word processors. So I had like some like K-Pro. I think I had a K-Pro at the time. <laughs> anyway, and those floppy disks and everything, right? And I was at the keyboard and she was, she was, you know, she'd walk around the room and we'd just talk every fucking line out. You know, I don't know how people do it. I mean, ultimately, you know, when I've written with other people the rest of my life, it's like we divvy it up. You know, we do, we agree where we're going to go and then you go into that your room or whenever, and I'll go into mine, and we'll meet, you know, three weeks later when we've done our parts, and we'll figure it out and write something else, right? But Lori and I, were, we're both in the same room. I think it's because, to be really honest with you, Lori hates to write. She's a very good writer, and she's an extremely clever person, but she hates to do it. So the only way you could do it would be in this, would be literally to be in the same room, and, and one person and me, you know, to be in the... On the instrument, I don't think she likes the process that much. But again, she's a good writer. It's not an easy thing to do, you know. It was a slugfest. It was it was difficult, fast. It was difficult, and ultimately it carried over. I mean, we were really hot writers when we finished that thing, and we were just like zooming. I mean, we were like on the top deep because Susan Seidelman, she was a star, right? And uh, we should have gotten a lot of work off of that, and we did get work, but independently. But we, because we, Lori went back when I was doing the rewrite, and I got pissed off. She was telling people she, you know, she brought the movie to Hollywood and all this kind of nonsense. And she, she was getting work, and I was doing the rewrite. And when I got back, I got work too. So we got work separately, and every once in a while we try to pitch other things together. But 
fight over the space, you know. <laughs> That's why I didn't really want to do this together. I mean, you know, we'd be fighting over the, you know, who who did what, when, and where. It's just easier. I, I'm still friendly with her, but uh, writing's another <laughs> writing's a different deal. Did the script change much between what you ended up doing with that final draft and what ended up on screen? No, not really. She had a guy, uh, some New York playwright, do a little bit of a dialogue polish, but no, it's really very close. And he didn't even do very much. She, for perverse reasons, took out my favorite line in the whole script, Susan, which was after the android flips out when he's making love to, to Trish, to to Lynn, to to Glenn Hadley, right? Uh, she says, "Whatever, and Trish, whatever." First woman ever to screw and unscrew the same man when his head comes off, and I and I and I was really pissed off that she got rid of that line. I couldn't believe it, and I thought that would have been funny as the as the line on this on the on the poster. You know, you know the fact is that no woman director up to that time. I don't know about Kathy Bigelow finally on on whatever is zero dark 40, maybe she had as much power. No woman director had as much power on a movie as Susan had on that movie. She got to cast it. She got, to, she was a producer on it. She selected what she wanted to do. She did the rewrites. You know, I mean, she was in charge of the rewrites. She, she, she got to go over the poster. She, uh, I mean, she had the full power there because they thought <coughs> she's a genius. She picked, um, you know, Madonna out of nowhere, and she'll pick somebody, you know, maybe, you know, she'll do the same thing again. And, you know, it's true that John Malkovich was great, but he wasn't at all who we had in mind. You know, Bruce Willis really, really wanted to do the movie. He came in twice for auditions. He, his his agent was powerful enough that he got him a second audition, you know, and Susan didn't want him. And uh, so he went off and did Blind Date, which made 50 million bucks, making missing costs cost me and Lori millions of dollars, <laughs> you know, by casting John, who was great. Don't misunderstand me. He just wasn't as handsome. And we, we're doing it for Cary Grant, right? Yeah. When I talked to Lori, she was saying that you guys had much more of a, a perfect male specimen in mind. Yeah, when it exactly. Came exactly. Exactly. I mean, another person that was, you know, certainly that someone could think was a perfect male specimen, you know, like, uh, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger wanted to do it. Right. And he would have been hilarious as some German scientist, right? And and the android, which of course he'd already, you know, he didn't terminate her if it's either then or it's right before that, actually. Bruce Willis would have been the guy. He, he was on top of the world because he had just finished moonlighting. He was right up there, and he really wanted to do the movie. I mean, to the extent that he had people, he knew people who knew me getting in touch with me. He wanted to do the movie, and uh, that would have been, you know, whatever would have been a much bigger hit. You know, people go to the movies because there's not because the director, you know, Susan said to me after the movie, this is a, when the movie came out and it did, you know, it was well reviewed, but it, you know, didn't make the kind of money that anybody hoped it would. And she said to me, you know, I always wondered that it's Susan. I always, you know, people told me that Madonna was really the reason that Susan, that that's really seeing Susan was such a big deal. And maybe they were right. <laughs> and I said to her, yeah, you know, Susan, you must have been the only person in America that wondered about that. <laughs> and the point is, she went around and, 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 you know, film festivals and stuff, people only wanted to talk about Madonna. She didn't like that. You know, she didn't like that. So she essentially was the star of this, this film. 
And uh, same thing, she could have had any woman. She took Anne Magnuson, who was good. I liked Anne. But she could have had anyone. I mean, Roseanne Arquette wanted I mean, everybody you can think of wanted it after the success of Desperately Zeus's, and everyone wanted it. Michelle Pfeiffer wanted to do it. I mean, you just, the list was so long. And, you know, she picks an obscure performance artist in New York. And I liked Anne in the movie. You know, I really liked her a lot, actually. She had a really, but films are made. Very hard to make a, you know, to have a super successful film with people that you, you know, that you're not really familiar with. And, you know, Malkovich wasn't even that famous at the time, right? He had done Places of the Heart, in which he was nominated, or he might even have won an Oscar, I can't remember. But that was it. You know, he was really Steppenwolf. And it was Steppenwolf, the company, that attracted Susan. That's why there were a bunch of people from Steppenwolf in the movie. In fact, I saw Balm and Gilead with Susan in New York, and that's, and it was great, you know, and, Malkovich was there, and we went back and met him. Glenn Headley was there, and uh, the other person that plays Jackie in the movie. What's you mean? Uh, what's her name? Oh, Laurie Mead Metcalf, who's great in the film. She was in the movie. I mean, in the in the production, the stage play of Balm and Gilead. So there were a lot of people from Steppenwolf in in the movie, and they were great. Laurie <laughs> Metcalf was really funny. You remember? Yeah, you remember Laurie Metcalf playing the goes out on a date? Oh God, that was too great. <laughs> he's not paying for anything. <laughs> She's trying to explain to herself that she understands that he <laughs> he gets her a ring. <laughs> she thinks she has to pay for it. The whole—I mean, that was that was really funny, actually. She's she's such a great actress, you know. She's been in so many good things, but she just never, for me anyway, kind of broke through. I mean, she never got to play the the main person. It was always kind of second banana. Yeah, 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 that's that's the truth. I mean, you know, she was second banana to Roseanne in the Roseanne Barr show, right? And I mean, we don't have to worry about her. She's made a lot of money in her time, but you're right. Never quite broke through the way she deserved to. Glenn Headley did, though, with Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. She has a great role in there, and she's, she's the one that devised the ending. They changed the ending. It's the only thing they changed from the original screenplay well, it was the ending, and she changed it because I know Dale Launer, the writer, pretty well. Yeah, there were some good actors in there. Could have been better, though. She had her pick of the litter. She had her pick up and down. And they would give her the money she wanted. Orion was like, she was God's gift to Orion. They would have given her anything she wanted. I mean, she recrafted the, you know, the the, the poster, the one sheet. Yeah. It's interesting, huh? It's really interesting. I mean, very rare that a director has that kind of power. Really, really rare. And she got it. But unfortunately for her, you know, it's like with a lot of people, she could have used some editing. She could have used some help. I mean, no studio. I mean, it's just, in, I mean, come on. No studio head in the world would have given her, just said, well, go pick any performance artist you want. Though, of course, she had picked Madonna, right? So, but still, come on. Madonna had a hit record that was coming out, you know, right then, right? Borderline when she did this. <laughs> she got to have Madonna. That would have been fine, but she, she wouldn't want that because not that Madonna could act, but, you know, she wasn't bad. She was certainly great and desperately seeking Susan, but um, she didn't want, that was the whole thing. She wanted to be the star. Yeah, that must have been a lot of pressure on her for this, for Susan to succeed with this film. She had succeeded well enough with, with desperately seeking Susan that, no, she went on to do, uh, people kept financing her because you get a ride. If you make an iconic film like desperately seeking Susan, you get a ride. She then did something. I can't remember what it was. It was uh, 
something Nora Ephron had written wasn't very good. And then after that, she did another big, pretty big budget film with, uh, with Meryl Streep and, and Roseanne Barr. She essentially ruined the film career of Roseanne Barr. She devil, yeah. Which she managed to, she took the, the, uh, British, which was a miniseries, a British one. I think it came in a couple of, in four parts maybe or something. In which you really feel for the Roseanne Barr character. And because she's, you know, she's fucked around on by her husband and she's overweight and, you know, she recrafts herself to get a revenge on the husband, right? And she, she, she essentially laughs at Roseanne Barr in the, in the new very end of the movie. Meryl Streep ends up being the sympathetic character. She steals the whole show, you know, who's an odious person in, in the original. And Meryl Streep's really great. And Roseanne Barr, they make fun of her in the movie. That's it, man. That was, you know, so she got a few other chances. I mean, first of all, making this right was very well reviewed. So, you know, that, she, that was no, that was, she's going to survive that, whether it makes it or doesn't make it. But if she had cast it differently, it would have been a big hit. All she had to do was pick, all she had to do was pick Bruce Willis. It was right there. I think it was Schwarzenegger wanted, wanted to do it. Though some part of me thinks it was Rudger Hauer, but who also wanted to play, which would have been really ridiculous. But I think it was Schwarzenegger. I think she said, next time I cast a movie, me and Judy cast a movie, an airing God as the lead, then I'll think about him. That gives you an idea how fucking cocky she was. Next time I need an Aryan god, I mean, are they crazy? And Schwarzenegger would have been really good, you know, when you think about it. I mean, he has a sense of humor. I mean, the guy's funny. He's not a great actor. He's not, I mean, John, you know, he, John was great. There's no doubt about it. Both those characters were really interesting, but, you know, nobody wanted to see this dummy guy. With, she, by the way, Susan made him redo his teeth. That was the thing. Yeah, he had to recap all of his teeth. If you see him in Places in the Heart, you see him. She made him, in order to play the lead, because she wanted a perfect guy, he had to recap his teeth. And the uh, and, and Orion's had to spend something around 10 grand to recap all his front teeth. And so he's got that, you know that look when they recap their teeth, and they look like they have a grill there? That's he still He still has it. But if you're looking at the movie before, so that's the idea. He couldn't be perfect unless he had good teeth. But, you know, hey, it was brilliantly art-directed. You know, she did a great job. And and uh, Ed Lockman shot it. Really, really a good job. You know, he's a, he's a fantastic talent. He just was nominated for Carol, right, this year. Yeah, he's that. I mean, that film has such a good look to it. I, I love oh, that yeah. kind of Art Deco thing that's going on with that. Miami, too. Yeah, I mean, it was brilliant. That was, you know, she was on top of that. Got to give her credit, Susan, for that. And she selected, you know, she, the art director. I can't remember the art director's name, but I don't know what happened to her. She went on to do other bigger movies. The Look Up was very hip, really hip, you know. And all sorts of stuff. It's funny. I mean, it's a funny movie. <laughs> Gary Glass. I mean, the lead the guy himself. The you know the, the her boyfriend that she's running the campaign for. What kind of work did you do after you're done with making Mr. Right? I wrote something. Uh, well, I mean, I got a bunch of jobs, and the next movie I got made was about four years later. It was called Mindwalk, which is about as far removed from making making Mr. Right as you can imagine. It's a. Um, it's like. A philosophical treatise, a bunch of people walking around an island talking about, 
using particle physics to talk about uh, political and psych- and uh, philosophical things with Liv Ullman and John Hurd and uh, uh, Sam Waterston and Ioni Sky. And that was an extremely successful, very weird movie that, um, you know, played for six months at the place here and won a bunch of prizes at Sundance and London Film Festival. And then a few years later, I did a movie called Masterminds, which is like a comedy, like an action comedy. And I did a bunch of rewrites in the interim, you know, and then I did another movie a few years ago called Compulsion, which was um, kind of a thriller. And I did a lot of, you know, TV and other rewrite work in the interim. Now, was Masterminds, was that your first venture into producing? Yes. Yeah. I should have actually got a producing credit on Making Mr. Right, to be honest. I mean, I'm the guy that brought in Susan. Nobody else did it. <laughs> they didn't know her from Adam. Mike Wise, Lynn Hindy, they didn't know her. But I didn't know enough to say, gee, I need to get a producing credit here. And that that made the movie. But, of course, it's possible that Susan wouldn't have done it. <laughs> I mean, she wanted all the power. It's possible she, she wouldn't have liked that idea. In fact, she tried to she she tried to beat us down on the price because you know we got paid you know we got paid something decent right up front but we had a nice back in for the time right and she tried to beat us down back in as one of the producers she had like no reason to do that anyway whatever yeah masterminds and then I was one of the producers on the same compulsion and you know and I've got a bunch of material that you know has directors attached or some money or this that or the other thing that most of which I'm a producer on, but not the producer. You know, being the producer is like, you know, it's it's a different skill set than I have. And, and, you know, it's not a rewarding profession. You know, you get blamed if it doesn't make it. And you don't really get much gratification if it does make it, unless you're really in the heart of the heart of the beast. You know, if it does make it, all the, all the praise goes to the director. I mean, like on Desperately Seeking Susan... It's also because, you know, the two producers, Sarah, Sarah Pillsbury and Ms. Sanford, they, they got some, they got, uh, they got some stuff on it, but they'd gone out of their way to say they hated the movie. So when the movie came out, <laughs> it was a big hit. People thought, wow, you hated the movie. What's going on here? So, but I mean, that's, that's just, a, you know, that's a weird example. I mean, producers don't really get the credit that they deserve often and, and they get blamed when it doesn't do well. So there you go. Directors and get more, and actors get most of the praise, and more writers sometimes. If you're Aaron Sorkin, how did you get involved with uh, Pete Smalls is dead? Alex is a friend of mine. I helped him uh, do some stuff on that. I had a good time. That's another funny movie. I mean, it, it's got its problems. I mean, whatever. But there's some really funny things in there, and it's brilliantly cast. Oh yeah, the cast is amazing. Amazing, yeah, yeah, really, really. everyone in there. Peter Dinklage is so great and it plays a romantic role. Cool movie, actually. Yeah, I always feel bad for Rockwell because it's like he was right there, kind of poised, you know, with yeah. uh, four rooms and, and, you know, right there with uh, Rodriguez well, and okay. Terrence, you know. Yeah, I yeah, know, that's right. But he did okay on, uh, you know, um, you know the one he did before that Bushimi's in, the one he got all the credit for um, in the soup, yeah. Seymour Cassell, he, he got a lot of credit for that. But he's a very idiosyncratic guy, and a very cool guy. He's a great guy. He's one of my very best friends. Someone I really like a lot. But he's a knucklehead. He's not. He's not very uh, flexible, and 
You know, it's like me. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a knucklehead too. So see, if he were a little bit more flexible, he would have been able to do plenty of things. But he's a real talent. I don't know if you saw his, this thing he did with his kids that came out last year called Little Feet. It's really good. He made it for no money at all, and it's really pretty fucking good. Yeah. He's a great guy. I love him. And now he's head of the film scene. He's head of the graduate program, a directing program at NYU. And he's a great teacher, you know, very charismatic, fun. Yeah. You know, he and I wrote a script together that I really, really like that we almost have gotten made many times. Uh, that I really like. We had a great time doing it. We became really close. And we actually, we have a whole project right now. You find me some money, man. You can get involved in an f- unbelievable project. But I'm doing, I'm doing a, a, a project that I really right now, like right now, like a recast, I mean, re, I mean, like adapting my adaptation of a Balzac novel for the Chinese community in the late 19th century in California. So with a big director in Korea, and his superstar Chinese wife, who are going to do it. So, but I have to, uh, yeah, it's awesome. But, <clears throat> you know, any chance I get not to work on it, it's always good. You mentioned the, the Korean connection. How did the whole, uh, the remake of 301, 302 come about? My wife and I said, my wife's Korean, but that's not, that's not, and, and I, we saw the movie and we thought we could do this in English. So we spent some time in a very complicated way getting the rights and um, it was very hard. It took us years to get the rights but eventually we met the guy who did the original one Director Park, who's now deceased through his assistant whom we moved. I can't even remember how we met him. Right, this director who's now a director but had been the assistant to this guy we met in some strange fashion. And we got to rights in this very odd way there was some former Miss Korea that we had met who claimed to know everybody and she's very, very beautiful, like a fifty year old, you know, like a like a monument to the to, to the, the greater Korean plastic surgeon art at the moment, right? She's probably had everything done. And um which it is one of the capitals of plastic surgery apparently. Anyway, so she's claimed to know everybody and she within a day when we said we wanted to do this thing she got a letter she got us a thing from the director saying I'll give you the rights and we were all friendly so I said okay I'll write the script so I wrote the script and uh, <laughs> it turned out she really didn't have the rights she had to pay 50 grand for the rights and she had neglected to tell us that and she was trying to get the money from some other dingbat producers and they wanted a younger writer I mean it was just the worst scene and so we had to put it aside and then we met the director at Sundance and um, he had a new manager and this manager was going to take care of everything this guy was a complete criminal and, and there's another year goes by you know and then when that didn't work with the new manager he called he had JJ this is his former assistant director in his own right call us up and say well he might be interested in giving it to you and that's what happened and we got together and talked about it and he had some Korean that was going to put some money, and we were finding the rest of the money. And we knew where we could get the rest of the money, kind of. And I got this idea. Or I'm trying to remember how we met. Anyway, I got it to Marissa Tomei right after Marissa Tomei, just weeks before she won the Emmy. And she loved it, and she wanted to play the uh, the former child star. And then we, because she wanted to do it, we had a wealth of opportunities for the... Um, for the next door neighbor and we were going to do it with Liv Tyler. I don't know. 
maybe she wasn't the best choice, whatever. But it was a really beautiful combo, and Orlando Bloom wanted to be in it. And we immediately got some guy through some third party, some other producer, who had this guy who had the money and was going to finance the whole movie. No problems asked. Could just finance a $20 million movie. So we went, we were, we went, you know, they, yeah, I still did. I didn't really have a deal. <laughs> I had kind of a deal. I'm one of the producers on it. I have a deal in, and the director came over here. This is the same guy was going to direct it, Mr. Park, the Korean. The women loved him. He had a great way with actresses. And we were going to make it was going to be a $12 million film. They got offices at CBS Radford that started building sets. Ed Lockman was going to shoot it, my friend. The guy who was putting up the money decided he wanted, he was a real producer, even though he hadn't done anything. And he made it more and more difficult to make a kind of deal. I mean, like, because really he wanted to get to know the actresses. They had no interest in him. And he had another film at Cannes, and that film he didn't sell. And he panicked. And six days before we were supposed to start production, he found a way to disengage, saying that I didn't have the rights, and I had the rights to disengage from the movie. And sued me for three or six million. I can't remember what it was. (laughs) And I had to fight the lawsuit. And he only sued me so he could say to agents, oh, the guy didn't have the rights, that's why I sued him. But the truth is, I had the rights, and that became rapidly clear. That became, but he was trying to escape, and um, so I had to fight that to get the rights back. And and this guy ended up, you know, that movie that he didn't sell at Cannes, he eventually sold to. He had some sort of deal where he was putting up all the P and A or something like that. I don't know all the details. At Paramount, it turned out that his money came from some sort of uh, some sort of fraud of, uh, through a bank in the Netherlands Antilles and. <laughs> And uh, last thing I know, he you know left the country or something, you know. So, but I got the rights back before that had happened. And you know, my lawyer said at the time, "Listen, you can sue the guy. I mean, you have so many damages here." But my wonder is, I'm not sure this is an honest person. This is before the whole thing, you know, happened. And uh, the guy really called that one right. He said, "You know, we could win, but are you sure you can collect?" And we never would have collected, as it turned out. I think I, you know. I don't know where this guy is now. Just the the worst, the worst of the film business. You know, just the worst scuzzy guy. I mean, he was terrible. But I mean, what can you do? The guy says, I'm going to pay for the whole thing. We don't need anything else. We don't need any, you know, we don't need any subsidies. You know, we don't need anything. Let's pay for the whole thing. And he had just done it. He had just spent $20 million on this sort of ode to himself. And uh, that George Gallo directed. So... Anyway, so we got the rights back and then gradually rebuilt it and made it a Canadian production, right? And and uh, that's that, that's where instead of having, you know, I mean, we had two great actresses. They just weren't as prime, you know. I mean, Heather, and, Heather was great and Carrie Ann Moss. Carrie Ann Moss, fantastic in this movie, you know. But um, she wasn't a hot the way others are. I mean, the way, you know, the first two we had. I mean, we had a real wall-to-world cast, really. Who knows? I don't know. that. You know, you never know how well it would have done anyway. Movies are in a tough time right now. You, know, you really have to have an advertising. I mean, when he did 301, 302, that was made for no money, you know, and it shocked people. I had I put a very different spin on this. You know, there was, you know, the, the girl who's cannibalized is essentially a child. In my version, it's a child actress who's like suicidal, really. 
and allows it to happen. It's really disturbing. And so his version, she was the daughter of a butcher. You know, once you almost make it with really major league people, like Marissa Tomei and Liv Tyler, you've got a good chance to get made with somebody else. And that's what happened. The problem was getting the rights back in time so people realized that it was almost just almost made. So it took me six months to get those rights back. And then, you know, it's all dependent upon getting Canadian money and stuff like that. But Vilmos Sigmund shot the movie, the last full movie he shot. Can't really ask for better than that. No, it's that's <laughs> right. It's the real top of the line. And we got it. My wife, you know, he's our friend, so... Actually, we got him because Lori and I had a gallery, which I was doing in a dilettante fashion, but she later continued. to. It started out dedicated to the private photographs, that's non-film, non-set photographs of great DPs. And he was the first guy, with this guy, Phil Parmet, he was the first guy we showed. And we became really close. And that was a lot of fun. We did that for a couple of years, and then Lori took it over to do painting and everything else. I was tired of it. I, you know, I'm a writer. He loved my wife, too, on top of him. He used to say to me, Floyd, you're the luckiest man in America. I, we were close to him and his wife. I'm still really close to his wife. He just passed away this year. It felt like for a little while there we were losing so many of our great yeah, DPs. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, Haskell Wexler the day before, I mean, the week before. That's one of his very best friends, right? Yeah, really was. He was... He passed away on, you know, December 31st, or he was really announced, I guess, on the 1st, and Haskell Wexler died a week earlier. It must have been right on, you know, the day after Christmas or something. Well, thank you so much for your time today. This has been wonderful. It's been fun. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I'll probably get sued by a lot of people. <laughs> I just decided just to let you know mostly the truth. Fuck them. Anybody that, you know, anybody cares, you know, 25 years ago, they can, you know, Get in touch. Their lawyers can call mine, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, just let the just let it fly. It was fun though. I was lucky to be able to do it. So, and uh, I'm sure, Lori feels the same way. Look here, girls. Take this advice and remember always in life. Into each heart. We are back, and we were talking about making Mr. Right. So I uh, have seen other Susan Seidelman films and have enjoyed what I've seen. Now, um, Beth, I know that you are a fan of Smithereens. Can you talk a little bit a bit more about that one? Yeah, and you know, that, that was her first feature film, and she – Amazingly, that was one of the first, I think it was the first American independent film that was like requested for the Cannes Film Festival for the competition. Mm -hmm. And it was, it kind of shocked and surprised her to get that much attention for that film, you know, right out of NYU. And it's a film about kind of the New York underground and the punk scene. And there's a character, uh, Ren, who is 
kind of the the twist on the kind of plucky heroine kind of thing because she's not entirely likable. It's a really great little film and Susan Sidemont has talked about how her initial influences were the, the French New Wave and, you know, the kind of European cinema because that stuff came to her kind of later in life that she got introduced to all that. So it, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend going and checking it out. It was shot on a minuscule budget. So, you know, it's interesting. I think she went from that to, you know, multi-million dollar budgets in a fairly quick leap. So she got quite a change in that. But the thing that really strikes me about her career, and I think it's one of the reasons why people don't talk about her quite as much as maybe she deserves, is her films a lot of times seem to be, like, her role as the director seems to have been overshadowed by other things. So, like, Smithereens gets picked up at Cannes and gets to be this kind of landmark independent film as opposed to just being her film. And then Desperately Seeking Susan, her next film, you hardly ever hear about who directed it. It's always Madonna's first starring Mm. film. Right. And I think that really overshadowed all the things that she did in that film that were really good, and Rosanna Arquette's performance in that as well. And then, you know, she did She-Devil, and that was Roseanne Barr's first film, and it was this remake of a a British show. And again, I, I feel like she keeps... She kept making films early on in her career where her contribution seemed to be overshadowed by other things. And I think that's a shame because I think she's really talented. And like I said, from the first film, from when I saw Smithereens, I was excited by what I saw on the screen. And I felt it had this nice grit and, you know, a personal style and a way of looking at female characters from a female point of view that wasn't necessarily trying to give you these role models or to say, you know, to kind of uh, force a message on you about like, oh, okay, we need positive women roles. No, we don't need positive women roles. We just need realistic women roles. And I think that's that's what she was, you know, doing with that. So I highly recommend people go and Rewatch her stuff with a little attention to what she's doing as a director as opposed to, oh, Madonna's first film. Oh, Roseanne Barr's first film. Oh, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it was that kind of overshadowed what she did. Yeah, she really uh, – it is amazing to look at Making Mr. Right and to think that this was only her third movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is firing on all cylinders, as yeah. was desperately as was Smithereens. I mean, all these, yeah, yeah. The, she was right out of the gate, really knowing her craft and able to pull together some very, very fine performances. I mean, these movies are not rough around the edges, which is really remarkable. I mean, you would think. Desperately Seeking Susan, okay, it's her first time making this kind of bigger budget film. Maybe there might be some missteps with it, but no, it it really ticks. You know, there are some great, great things to this. And to me, the one thing that is amazing is watching the cast and seeing just how many amazing character actors are Mm -hmm. in this film or in that film. And then same thing with Making Mr. Right. Every single role is played by the right person. Mm. Well, and you have to remember, too, that when she made Desperately Seeking Susan, she had to kind of vouch for Madonna. She had to say, like, I really think that that she can act and that she can be in the film because they cast it or they were in the casting process before Madonna was really popular. Um, I think they were, like, next-door neighbors or had lived on the same street or something. And Susan Seidelman really had the confidence that 
she could do this part and that she would be amazing in it. And she talked about how she was fortunate to have kind of got her before she was famous, but the film came out as she was peaking so that it helped the film. But, uh, you know, I think she deserves credit for being able to spot that talent. And there are a lot of small roles in Desperately Seeking Susan that she used some of the, Anne Magnuson was in it, I think Laurie Metcalf also, who she you know, advanced to larger roles in her later film. And so I think she has a really good eye for talent. It was amazing that Madonna, I, I don't want to say this and be catty, but she used to be a really good actress, you know, and, <laughs> and she used to really do comedy very well. I mean, Who's That Girl is another great movie that she was in. I enjoyed that one a lot. And then she just seemed to really kind of uh, crawl up her own butt with a lot of these roles. <laughs> I mean, just uh, Shanghai Surprise. Maybe and, that was after being with Sean Penn. Uh, yeah. It's all Sean Penn's fault, as usual. Oh, I mean, Vita. <laughs> Maybe he made her self-conscious. <laughs> it could be it could be but yeah i just uh i mean uh what was the one the guy ritchie movie that she was in uh the remake of swept away yeah oh, Ooh, oh that was man that i forgot was about awful that. yeah awful 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 not even yeah. so bad it was good it was just mm-hmm. plain awful yeah yeah <laughs> but uh but desperately speaking susan go watch it it is definitely uh, it holds up as well. I rewatched it again recently, mm-hmm. and it was one of those where even people who I didn't recognize the first time, I was like, "Oh, hey, it's that doctor from CSI New York. Hey, look <laughs> at that guy." Yeah. <laughs> well, I hope that this conversation, you know, well, I, I don't think we need to convince people to see Desperately Seeking Susan. I think that one has a, a pretty solid audience or cult audience at this point. But but for making Mister Right, you know, I, I hope that. Some listeners will say, you know what, maybe I'll give this a shot and, you know, watch it with some friends and, and really appreciate that its comedic timing is mm-hmm. on point and the, these wild uh, characterizations and, and, uh, and ro- uh, the, the actors that bring these <laughs> complete, the shenanigans to the screen <laughs> are, are it's just so much fun. It's, yeah, I, I'd, like, I'd like to see this get talked about more. I have to admit, I mean, when, when, when I came back, when I got it again to watch it for this podcast, I wasn't sure what to expect. I, I barely had remembered even watching it. So um, I appreciate saying yes to doing this episode and getting this opportunity again. Well, thank you for taking it. Yeah, no, this one still holds up. I mean, I rewatched it again this morning and. Like I said, I still laugh at the right places, and it is just, it's a lot of fun. And it it feels like the people who are making this movie are having fun at the same time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I agree. But, yeah, talking about the timing, I mean, it is, in comedy, that is a key factor, and everybody in this is right on the money for creating these characters and kind of giving them their little quirks and ticks and just... They're just delightful to watch. And they're all – it really is this ensemble piece. And mm. maybe that comes from, I think, you know, when she did Smithereens, it was a lot of um, people she knew at NYU. And I think there was this real community sense of when they were making the film. And I think you get this feeling with this film, too, that it's like everybody's working together. Everybody knows the part that they fit into this machine and how they need to function to make it all work, and it's it's like a well-tuned machine. Every character has a level of absurdity. 
And Uh I feel like every actor knew exactly what that level was and didn't underplay or overplay. It's, It's this perfectly tuned, calibrated line of I'm a real seeming actor, but there's something about me that's just a little hyper real. I'm, you know, Don and his hair yelling at the ladies who love him for New Jersey. Don't touch the hair. Don't touch the hair. (laughs) It's both played completely straight and completely absurd at the same time. It's it's not just the timing. It's how it's presented. It's perfectly balanced. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Joysticks. If everyone would like just bag the noise, okay, like we could do this. Everyone's doing it. But it's not vulgar. (laughs) Kids play with their joysticks day in and day out, jerking back and forth. Everyone's doing it. But it's not violent. (laughs) Like, where are we supposed to go? And everyone's doing it. Joysticks. You and I have something in common. We both like to hang out in public bathrooms. No. Prepare yourself. I would like you to meet Simba. A film for people who are totally into fun. Strip video. You got it. Games. Oh, damn it! And good times. You're running a garbage dump in here, and I intend to do something about it. You will not go to the arcade again, right? If I want to go to the arcade, like, I am going to go. Just for the fun of it. If you win, I'll close the arcade down. It's more fun than games. Joysticks. I can't go on like this! That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of joysticks and totally awesome video games. <laughs> Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Miguel and Beth. Last time we talked, guys, you were discussing quite a few programs that you have going on in 2017. I'm curious how all that is going. <laughs> we're exhausted. I know. I man. bet. I, I'm, <laughs> but it's great. It's great. Yeah, but it's tiring. We've got um, we've got our well, no, this coming weekend we're packed. Well, I think this is airing in March. Oh, it's airing in March. Right? Well, as of this recording, (laughs) we're super busy, but yeah, we're happy. (laughs) Yeah, so basically, we're we're just moving on forward with a series of John Carpenter films Mm -hmm. at the Digital Gym, and then um, a series of famous firsts at the Museum of Photographic Arts. And it's great to be able to show these films to a lot of people who have never seen them. And that's really what's fun, is Miguel always makes a point of asking people, all right, how many of you have seen Breathless, which was the film we opened with, which is appropriate, talking about Susan Seidelman and and Mm -hmm. her affection for the French New Wave. And what was it, like over half the audience had not seen it and that was their first experience and we love the fact that their first experience is going to be on a big screen with those films and with with us yes. you know with a group with with a community and you know they're not watching it on their cell phone while they're taking a crap at home they're <laughs> they're watching it in the, the way it's meant to be seen Beth, tell me about the uh, John Wick podcast 
Oh, yeah. I had a lot of fun doing this. I'm a huge action fan. And so I had an opportunity to go speak with Chad Stahelski, who is one of the co-founders of 8711, which is an action design company. And he was a stuntman who became a director with John Wick. And now John Wick Chapter 2 is out. And I got to do a podcast where basically I spoke to him all about how he's changing American action because he's applying kind of the Hong Kong approach that he learned working with Yun Wo Ping on The Matrix and applying that to American action films. And basically it's this sense of, you know, you don't stop the story for an action scene and the director walks away and leaves everything to the second unit. Is like when you're writing that script, you need to be thinking about – how you're going to shoot it and your cameraman and your editor and all those people need to be like on the same page with how it's done. And I also got to speak to Bay Logan, who wrote this seminal book on Hong Kong action called Hong Kong Action. <laughs> and it was a book that I remember reading when I was first getting into uh, Hong Kong films. And he talks about, you know, that particular style and what it is that makes Hong Kong action films from like the 80s unique and how that kind of technique has kept going. So I, it's just me getting to gush over how great action films are when they're done right. <laughs> you know, we're actually covering uh, the Better Tomorrow series, uh, the last episode of the year. Uh-huh. And um, I was reminded of A Better Tomorrow when I was watching John Wick Chapter 2 when he's setting all the guns in the particular mm-hmm. places. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's like with Mark when he's got the guns yep. in the fern or whatever that is, the plant outside. So. Oh yeah. yeah, you can see a lot, and I think the the opening warehouse bit is is a little bit of an homage to the whole hard boiled. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, better tomorrow, man. John Woo, he does like the craziest best action, but then he just rips your heart out too. <laughs> like his films are. I think Hard Boiled is one of the few ones that I can watch repeatedly without having to like end in a, a massive tears and stuff. Yeah, he blends. <laughs> He blends, yeah, high-octane action with melodrama. Yes. Massive sentiment. <laughs> well, and, you know, they call his stuff heroic bloodshed, and it does have this this quality that's just larger than life. And, man, I so fell in love with Chow Yun-Fat, and I, I, I got to interview him once, and I remember— <gasps> Thinking to myself that if this man asked me to, like, run away with him, like, I would have left my kid, my husband, my (laughs) home, everything, like, just to go because he was absolutely charming. So, (laughs) Mike just gasped at your your having interviewed Chow Yun-Fat. So, I don't know if Mike, yeah, I don't know if Mike knows this. I think you should reveal to him Chow Yun-Fat's personal hero. Oh, yes. Well, the person that he, I don't know exactly how he phrased it, but he really would love to be like Mr. Bean. (laughs) (laughs) He loves physical comedy. I can see that from the God of Gamblers films. Yeah. yeah. Well, and he does so many. There's also Diary of a Big Man, you Mm -hmm. know, where he paints the fake eyes on his closed (laughs) eyelids. And he does that song. What is it? Very nice. Um, Man can sing. Yeah. yeah, but uh, yeah, I, th- I forgot what I asked him. I said, like, you know, what, who would you aspire to work with, or what would you, what kind of role would you like to play? Oh, Mr. Bean, like, <laughs> just, I would love to see. And you know, that's one of the things that I hated about his American films is they wanted him to be this serious, like, 
hitman or this, you know, serious action star. And I think, I don't think in the replacement colors he even got to smile one. Yeah. They wanted him to be like Kung Fu, you know, the old show with David yeah. Carradine. They just wanted, oh, we want this old, you know, monk but they they totally ignored that he's got this brilliant comedic side and that he's so charming. And, you know, they have him play this, like, really kind of hard-edged and straight and, you know, serious killer. And they completely missed an opportunity to – I mean, I think if, if they had given him some better material in that first film, there's no way he couldn't have been a huge star. But they wanted him to fit a mold that – he wasn't. I, I remember one of my key films, I think, is um, Tiger on the Beat. Oh, God, which, yeah. Um, I remember this film just amazed me because it it revealed to me how different a sensibility Hong Kong films were from American. But he plays kind of the tough cop. And in the early scene, I, th- I don't know if it was the first scene, but at the beginning, he has to, like, get some guy who's got hostages out and at some point he pisses his own pants (laughs) and like you think about this like could bruce willis recover from that in a diehard film and still be the hero that the audience wants because by the end of the film you've completely forgotten that and he is the kick-ass hero of that film but you know the fact that they could do that and have the confidence in this guy to go like he can go from point A to point B and you're going to go completely along with it for the ride was amazing. That I movie, just love him. Tiger on Beat ends with one of the greatest battles when they are oh, fighting with chainsaws. God. Oh yeah. Yes. I want to go home and watch all these movies. I want to watch again. all these movies. Oh, you guys are killing me. <laughs> They're all so good. Yes. And he's got a physical presence. Like, you know, when he does action scenes, he has a grace that's like a dancer. Yes. And, I mean, I, I can completely see what John Woo saw in him and why he wanted to work with him so much. And he, he saw a lot of, you know, he saw that he was this, he had this star charisma. And I, I remember... Uh, I think Alan Delon sent him a thank you note mm. because he wore these Alan Delon sunglasses in the Better Tomorrow films, and the sales of that skyrocketed mm. after he did that. But he had that kind of like star power that, you know, he's on screen, he's wearing those glasses and lighting up his cigarette with a $100 bill, and <laughs> who's not going to swoon? <laughs> Oh, Male yeah. or female. Well, <laughs> Stephen Chow made a whole movie called My Hero where he dresses like Chow Yun-Fat in the movie. <laughs> I mean, that's the box cover. When I saw the box cover the first time at a Chinese grocery store, I was like, oh, is this Chow Yun-Fat? And then it was like, no, it's, it's this guy who I'd never heard of at the time called Stephen Chow. Oh, Stephen like, Chow. Now yeah. Stephen Chow is a legend in his own right. Yeah, oh, he's Stephen making... Chow is like, you know, the Looney Tunes cartoons come to life. <laughs> yes. God, that guy is brilliant. Oh, yeah. And what was it? Mermaids was like top grossing film yep. of the, mm-hmm. all of last year worldwide. <laughs> yeah. yep. And he's not even in that. He right. has an actress kind of being his alter ego who's like doing the kind of physical comedy that he usually does. Oh, man. But I want to see him on screen again. God, yes. He's so good. And I'm, I'm, I'm really sad that I don't speak fluent Chinese, even though my grandfather was Chinese. I never was able to learn. But he does. He's such a verbal. He's both an absolutely brilliant physical comedian and he's also this incredibly verbal one and i remember one of his thing films i think it was flirting scholars where they have a verbal duel 
Like it's a it's a verbal duel where they actually get injured from like these <laughs> these killing rhymes at the end, and they like knock each other out with them. And I was like, oh, I don't think the subtitles are doing them justice. Right. Oh, <laughs> but it was brilliant. It's like trying to watch uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern with, <laughs> <laughs> and not knowing the language. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, good stuff. I definitely uh, will check out the uh, John Wick podcast. That sounds terrific. I was hoping you were going to do like a John Wick minute by minute kind of thing. <laughs> death by death. That's the yes. next Let's do, let's next do a count. Let's do a count. <laughs> Number of headshots per episode. <laughs> oh, man. The action in that just rocked. And the thing is, even though he's using like a Hong Kong approach, it's not a Hong Kong action film. He definitely brings this American flair to it. And it's great. It's so much fun. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's the thing I like about Keanu Reeves is that after he worked with Yon Mo Ping, he, he mm-hmm. really kind of adopted some of that. I mean, to, he's, I mean, this is like the second stunt guy that he's had direct some of his movies. And he, he well, the one that uh, uh, Keanu Reeves was the bad guy, I think the main character in that was one of his former stuntmen. And that was terrific mm-hmm. as well. Was that Man of Tai Chi or tai something? Chi, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And I think Yun Wo Ping directed that. Is that I'm not right? Sure. I'm not sure. I think I thought he had. I thought that was like a project he had worked on. But yeah, I mean, the guy's 52, and he's like better doing. Than he ever has, and too. he's doing. I mean, the thing about John Wick films is they do these long, wide shots to highlight the action and to show that Keanu's doing a lot of this stuff himself, and oh, yeah. it's impressive. Yeah, some of the fight choreography when he is going at it, I'm like. It, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's stuff that you might see like a Jason Statham do, mm-hmm. and you like, okay, yeah, I can believe Jason Statham. He's kind of built for that. But yeah, Keanu Reeves. This is the guy from uh, Love, Lovey to Death and these kind of movies. What? What? <laughs> How did this happen? You know, and he's a big guy too. He's tall, and oh, you yeah. know, a lot of times, like Ben Affleck, I thought looks awful doing action in that accountant film. He looks klutzy and just ungainly kind of but you know Keanu looks pretty smooth doing that stuff and that he really has a sense of that you know it's what what they call gun fu where it's you know it's a mix of kung fu and martial arts with gunplay or what they call it tactical three gun mm-hmm. so uh, but yeah he looks really impressive and uh yeah and some of the car stunts in that I mean there's still a couple of them where my jaw drops and I'm going like how did somebody not get killed doing right. that you know what it was actually Keanu Reeves was the one who directed Man of Tai Chi Oh, okay. Uh, there you go. Yeah. The director and the bad guy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. He makes a good bad guy. Mm-hmm. Yes, he and does. Neon Demon, man. Oh, yeah. He Neon was Demon good. Yeah, he knows what he's doing. Well, Miguel, is there anything uh, you would like to promote? Have you been on any uh, Keanu Reeves-themed podcasts? <laughs> <laughs> I still haven't seen John Wick Chapter 2 yet. Oh, so. you got to get Shame to that. On you. I know. I, I mean, I haven't had time to get to the theater, but I, I, I definitely – actually, tomorrow is a day off, so I might skip out of – Comic Fest early and go watch John Wick Chapter 2 finally. I mean, I've seen John Wick twice in prep 
for finally getting to see chapter two, but still haven't had a chance to see that. Um, but as far as, yeah, as far as promo, uh, Beth and I are pretty much doing all the same things right now. So she got that covered. Um, the, you have your own podcast. I've got my podcast. That, uh, just put up an episode last night, which uh, I recorded at San Diego Comic Fest, which is all about a rock opera adaptation of H.P. Lovecraft's Dreams in the Witch House. <laughs> um, and uh, they are uh, making a – they did a double LP of it, a concept album. And now they're they're uh, getting ready to make a film and they've got, you know, Barbara Steele and Courtney Gaines. So I got to talk to the producer, Mike Dallager, and, uh, and Courtney Gaines, who many people would know as Malachi from Children of the Corn. Uh, so that was a lot of fun, actually. So that, that episode just went up. And I have been asked to join another podcast where I'm co-host with Heather Buck, producer Heather Buckley. And it's a live call-in show. So basically, we just kind of field uh, live calls from people on different topics. And that's called Mass Hypnosis. And uh, our first episode actually was surprisingly successful. I I seriously was expecting it to be just Heather and I talking to each other as we waited desperately for someone to make a phone call. But uh, it wasn't that at all. Heather and I barely got to talk because it was phone call after phone call after phone call. So Wow. That was yeah, it was really nice. It ended up being five hours long or something. Holy cow! Who's going to listen to a five-hour-long podcast? A lot of people, actually, surprisingly. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, we had people like uh, like Michael Felcher. You know, he runs Red Shirt Pictures, mm-hmm. and uh, Rebecca McKendry from Bloomhouse. We had some pretty serious people call, so that was pretty pretty fun. Um, and that was all about VHS memories. And uh, and the next episode, we do this every last Tuesday of the month. Um, so the next one will be on the 28th of February. And since, you know, this is Black History Month and Women in Horror Month, we're looking at diversity and uh, representation in different films, particularly in horror, but genre, fantasy, that kind of thing. And uh, and hopefully we'll hear from more than just a bunch of white dudes like we did the first time, other than Rebecca. Thank you. Rebecca called like she was the last one. So she's, <laughs> she snuck in there and, and broke the pattern. But uh, yeah, you know, I actually sent, you know, little tweets to like uh, um, Peel, who directed Get Out. I was like, hmm, maybe he'll call. Of course, yeah, fat chance. But uh, yeah, be, uh, starting at 9 p.m. Eastern on the 28th of February, it's uh, 844-505-DEATH, and you can be the star of a podcast. Miguel just does not get that this is going to drop. Yeah, in it's going to be in March. March yeah. <laughs> Damn it. Well, <laughs> your March topic? The final Tuesday of March, which I believe this one's a little darker, but I believe we're going to be talking about um, being attracted to real death. Though, so people who like who were interested in watching things like Faces of Death or Traces of Death or weird, gross videos on the internet. Uh, we kind of want to hear what people's, uh, you know, what 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 makes them tick with that kind of thing. So it'll be caller A, caller B, not no names. <laughs> right. There might be there might be some anonymous calls and and yeah, I might have to find a way to uh, block. Thankfully, that phone number does not reveal my address. So. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. I keep I keep forgetting that that you record these in plenty of time to be able to actually edit them. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Well, if you run across any necrophiliacs, send them my way because we're actually doing the movie Kissed in April. Oh, Kissed. <laughs> oh, yeah. my God. You know, I remember seeing that film and all the other critics walked out. Yeah. I was oh, wow. the last one there. <laughs> and I was the only one who wanted to interview the director. And because no one else did, she didn't come to, I think it was a oh, woman. No. Who, yeah, yeah, she didn't come Lynn to San Diego. Yeah. 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 That I is love so that movie. not surprising. I yeah. love that movie. She has been very easy to get along with, and um, she's supposed to be setting up a, a like a multi-person uh, interview uh, in like two weeks. So oh, I'm cool. looking forward to talking with her. Yeah, it's supposed to be uh, Molly Parker and I can't remember Greg's last name, but yeah, they're both supposed to be there. That was a a very interesting twist on the happy ending to a romance. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really looking forward to recording that one. Um, yeah, I'll let you know if uh, any necros call me. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah, I'm on it. <laughs> yeah, surprisingly, not a topic on FetLife. I was very surprised about that one. <laughs> you would think. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projection-booth.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. We'll have links to where you can find out more about Beth and Miguel's uh, many, many things that they have going on. you also find links over to iTunes, where you can rate and review the show, and over to our Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode, as long as I'm not running late, which happens <laughs> more and more. So, every donation and every rating helps the projection booth take over the world. Imagine me and you, I do. I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the girl you love and hold her tight. So happy together. I should call you up, invest a dime, and you say you belong to me, lose my mind, imagine how the world could be, so very fine, so happy together. Toss the dice, it had to be The only one for me is you And you for me, so happy together the dice it had to be the only one for me is you and you for me so happy together the dice it had to be the only one for me is you and you for me so happy together
this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.